Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the astrological forecast for August of 2023. Joining me today are astrologers Austin Kopic and Michael J. Morris. Welcome, both of you. Hello, hello. Thank you so much. All right, so we're going to do, I'm going to give a quick overview of the month ahead over the next minute. Then for the first hour of this episode, we're going to review news and events and check in on how the astrology has worked out since our last forecast. Then in the second hour of this episode, we're going to talk about the astrology of August itself and look forward to the future. Um, so if people want to just jump ahead to the forecast, then you can find timestamps on the astrologypodcast.com website. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. So here's the planetary movements calendar that shows where the planets will start at the beginning of the month and how far through the signs the zodiac they'll get by the end of the month. And here is the planetary alignments calendar that shows us the astrology of August. Our first major astrological aspect of the month is a full moon in the sign of Aquarius on August 1st. And of course, the month opens with Venus is still in the early phases of her retrograde cycle that started way back on July 22nd, very recently. And then in the third week of August, we get one of our first major alignments, which is the Sun-Venus-Kazemi, which is exactly halfway through the Venus retrograde cycle on August 13th. Then on the 16th of August, we have a new moon in the sign of Leo. On the 22nd, Mars opposes Neptune in Pisces. Then the next day, the Sun moves into Virgo, while Mercury stations retrograde in the same sign of Virgo on the 23rd. The following week, Mars ingresses or moves into the sign of Libra and departs from Virgo. Then the next day on the 28th, Uranus stations retrograde uh, in Taurus. And then two days later, we get our third lunation of the month, which is a full moon in the sign of Pisces on the 30th of August. So we'll be talking about that and a bunch of other astrology during the course of this episode. All right. Uh, welcome, both of you, to the podcast. Michael, thanks for joining us. This is your second time on the podcast, uh, but first time doing a forecast episode. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It feels like so much has happened since the last time I was here. Um, but the last episode we did together is something that I still get um, a lot of people talking about and commenting um, and bringing up with me, which was um, we did an episode on transgender experiences in astrology, which was episode 279 of the Astrology Podcast. And so if folks haven't listened to that episode, it seems like it's a valuable resource for a lot of folks. And it was a real delight to record that with you. And I feel like it's good work that we did that's continuing to circulate in the world. And yeah, and then a lot has happened since then. Yeah, that was a super important episode that we did way back in late 2020, which is like not actually that long ago, but it also <laughs> in another way feels like a lifetime ago, which is kind of crazy at this point. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. It feels like 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, Austin, how about you? Have, have, how's, has it felt like a, a lifetime since our last time doing a forecast episode last month? I wish. You wish. Um, how's no. the astrology treating you? Are you enjoying watching the different Venus retrograde stories? Yeah, um, I started. I, should just say, I, I start. I noted a disturbance in the Venusian force, um, mm. really towards the beginning of July. I was just seeing things going, going in a different trajectory, and you know, we were surprise gifted peacocks at the end of last month, and so looking out my looking out the window and seeing a peacock like twenty times a day has been a uh, like a very constant sort of meditative reminder of Venus retrograde in Leo. 
Um, cause the, one of them, you know, it's a, a one, two of them are like adolescent slash juveniles. And then one of them is an adult male who has the, like the full glory and is constantly doing a display. And so, you know, that like, um, sort of puffing up and trying to create a dramatic appearance all the time, uh, <laughs> uh, has brought my mind to my, my working metaphor, or like sort of thought image or image to think on for the Venus retrograde was this um, this peacock in full display, seeing himself in our windows and attacking himself, thinking that it was a rival. Like, who is that beautiful bird? Like, obviously there can be only one. And, you know, with Venus in general, um, where we have uh, the, for a very long time in a lot of contexts, uh, we often see Venus with a mirror in hand. Right, the 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 mirror is both, um, so to say, a practical item as well as a magical tool, um, and then especially with this uh, this one brewing in Leo, which is uh, you know especially about sight and self and image, um, just seeing the the, <laughs> the peacock um, super engaged with its own image um, and threatened by how splendid its own <laughs> image is um, has been. I don't know. It's been really interesting. And then another layer of that is he keeps displaying to the window and is very frustrated because um, there he all he he's an incel. All he wants is to mate, and there's nobody around who gives a shit. And so I, <laughs> I have this daily meditation on the frustrated incel peacock um, staring himself in the mirror and like try like trying to get bigger and more impressive. And yet every time he does that, the peacock in the mirror does the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, I know, it's felt very rich. Well, speaking of incel peacocks, I mean, that'll we'll get come to that we'll circle around to that imagery later when we talk about the rebranding of Twitter under the Venus retrograde. <laughs> but let's uh let's talk about that let's get into some news stories right now because there's been just so many different news stories or stories in the news that relate to the venus retrograde that i've been kind of caught off guard and kind of um not surprised because we've been talking about this and like hyping up this venus retrograde for months now ever since our forecast back in december we knew it was going to be a big one but i'm surprised at how literal and how evocative many of the different venus retrograde stories are um so I want to talk about one of them first, which is what a lot of people have been talking about because it ended up being a really striking correlation, which is the release of these two big blockbuster movies on the same day on July 21st, which was within 24 hours of the Venus retrograde station at 28 degrees of Leo. And the most notable and sort of like obvious one that ended up lining up with that was the release of the Barbie movie, um, which ended up being just this huge um, smash hit and also just really striking in terms of astrological symbolism that this, mo this movie was released on a Venus retrograde in the sign of Leo literally like the same day. Like that's pretty literal, even just if you haven't seen the movie, on the surface level, like Venus retrograde and Leo, and somebody releases a Barbie movie, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you well, could say. Yeah, uh, I think uh, uh, very much so. One of the one thing in particular that we saw with some other figures tied to this cycle is that you know it's Venus and Leo; it's the place of the sun, and there's so much about um, Barbie that is about that is like you know, kind of a beach or sunny aesthetic. Like the attitude is sunny and positive and can do. I'm not, I haven't seen the movie, but I mean the, the doll franchise. Um, but like, you know, like the sun soaked, uh, like the, the sun soaked aesthetics are very clear. 
right? Mm -hmm. There's like lots of beachiness. It's from that sort of like, how should we say, California-centric phase of yeah. American culture? Yeah, well, and I think as the only person here, I think that's seen the Barbie movies so far, because I felt like I needed to do my research and sort of like experience what the cultural moment was, uh, that I'm the resident Barbieologist. So I'm going to hit you all some some Barbie astrology facts really quickly, if you would, if you would humor me for, for a few minutes. Sure. All right, here we go. So Venus station retrograde the same day that the movie was released. The movie actually had many themes that were very evocative of Venus retrograde, including themes surrounding like feminism, patriarchy, motherhood, what it's like to be a woman, independence from men, the con contradictions of being a woman, aging, appearance, death, and a bunch of other things. It ended up being actually surprisingly subversive. And before I went into both movies because I actually saw Barbie and Oppenheimer. I assumed that the Barbie would more manifest the Venus retrograde and Oppenheimer would manifest the Mars-Saturn opposition or the Sun-Pluto opposition that was happening simultaneously. But I was pleasantly surprised because Barbie actually ended up having some pretty serious, deep, and sort of like profound themes at the same time that drew in not just the Venus retrograde, but also the Sun opposite Pluto and the Mars opposite Saturn with some of those really heavy um, contradictions, as well as a focus on, on the one hand, subversion or subversiveness, um, as well as this theme of like both and or this notion that multiple things can be true at the same time. So the movie was wildly successful, and it ended up being the biggest opening for a woman director in history with over $150 million. So that in and of itself is notable on the Venus retrograde. But get this, the director... Greta Gerwig was actually born on August 4th, 1983, which was the day that Venus stationed retrograde in the same Venus retrograde cycle, because mm -hmm. in 1983, it went retrograde in Virgo and then retrograded back to Leo. So if you count in eight-year increments where Venus goes retrograde in the same signs every eight years, you come to this year. So the director who just became the like you know, biggest opening for a woman director of all time currently was born under the same Venus retrograde that that movie that she released was released under, which is just incredibly striking astrology. Um, other things. So it's very similar actually to um, like Mark Hamill, for example, who was born around the time of Venus stationing direct and Star Wars was actually released mm -hmm. when Venus stationed direct at the same time. Um, so Barbie was originally released in 1959, in March of 1959, but it was actually a flop. I was reading a biography about the founder, and it wasn't successful when she first debuted Barbie at a toy expo. And after that, she was really disappointed and kind of depressed for the next few months. But then all of a sudden, a few months later, um, Venus went retrograde in the signs of Virgo and Leo, the exact same signs that it's in now. And over the course of that summer, through a variety of different things, Barbie all of a sudden took off and became wildly successful. Um, so I actually found this amazing quote that describes in one biography um, that describes that. Here it is. As schools began to close for the summer, however, Mattel got calls from buyers wanting Barbie dolls. For Ruth, the, the creator of Barbie, it must have felt like the roller coaster of a previous toy release all over again. After the toy fair, she had remained conservative with the orders for Barbie dolls sent to her Japanese manufacturers, 
And she said, quote, in the toy business, Ruth said, you live or die with the quality of the projection you make. Your lead times are very long and the commitments you make very early influence how much you make and sh or ship and whether you get stuck with what you do. So it goes on and says, she was trying not to get stuck with Barbies when suddenly she had the opposite problem. The demand skyrocketed as the effective uh, as the effect of the television advertising, free time for summer play, and the novelty of the doll propelled girls to pester their parents for Barbie. The industry was just going frantic with demand for Barbie, Ruth remembered. The buyers who had been uninterested at the toy fair earlier that year when it launched were now clamoring to get the doll. Little girls wanted to play it being big girls, just as Ruth had guessed. And this is the same exact Venus retrograde that's happening right now with the movie release, which is just like amazingly striking astrology and is a good reminder that Venus retrogrades, when they happen, they can sometimes refer back to the past and connect mm -hmm. events that happened in the past, either generally speaking, or sometimes very directly chronolo chronologically in like eight, eight year increments, basically. Um, yeah, it's wild. They um, So I bumped in, bumped into a Barbie Venus retrograde and Leo uh, factoid while doing other research. Um, the, the, the arch, certain archetypes are very insistent right now. Um, so, uh, I read an article that said that the aesthetic, uh, that the Barbie movie was based on was, um, was introduced in 1975 and ran until 1991, right? There have been different sort of, um, aesthetic waves in Barbiedom. And of course, 1975, Venus retrograde and Leo, 1991, Venus retrograde and Leo. Right. So even the like phases of like, you know, this Barbie is like this for X amount of time, two retrograde cycles in a row, um, both beginning and ending mm -hmm. on um uh <clears throat> on the Venus in uh Leo, Virgo Leo. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um there's something pretty striking about the um this being like such a massive box office success for a woman director, first time ground um uh breaking records. And that happening on a retrograde, which like if we think right. about classical interpretations of retrogrades, it's like things being delayed or things moving backwards or things being um, retracted that have been given, things like that. And yet under these conditions, what we see is like maybe social forces around access to um, success or fame or reputation being reversed in some way, a kind of like social or cultural trend moving in the opposite direction with the release of this film, something like that. Yeah. And at the same time, like um, I was saying this to Chris earlier, I haven't seen the film, so I can't really comment on the content of the film. But what I've seen unfolding on social media is conversation about it and the complexity of the ways in which it's being held or heralded as a real feminist triumph for a feminist film. And then also other people critiquing the ways in which it adopts some feminist tropes, but ultimately in service to marketing a brand of toys that has been, you know, critiqued for several decades about the detrimental impact they have on girls who grow up into to be women and the ways in which it um, imposes certain ideas, not only about body image or beauty norms or beauty ideals, but also like who is supposed to play with what, like even in the quote that you just shared, Chris, the ways in which like girls pestering their parents to have Barbies. And so Barbie in and of itself has been an instrument within culture of sorting, like girls are supposed to play with this, boys are supposed to play with that. 
And yeah, just thinking about the ways in which the retrograde, this retrograde lining up with this film is inviting some of those conversations to be revisited or reviewed or reevaluated. Are these the norms that we want to perpetuate in our society? Whether or not the film perpetuates them one way or another, the, that, the, that the conversations are coming out um, around the release of the film just feels striking to me in terms of yeah, just reevaluating what it is that, what kind of society do we want to be, especially around issues of femininity and gender more broadly. It, yeah, one issues one that was the, one of the, the interesting of the things that happened at the same time in the film itself is that it was made by essentially like an indie film director who's been mm -hmm. coming up over the past several years and who put many of those discussions like front and center in the film itself. Um, and so that's another reason is it's like a lot of people now are, are reflecting and thinking about and talking about a lot of these things, which is one of the reasons I think it's important for astrologers to pay attention to what's happening in culture, because part of one of that many hats that astrologers wear is being a cultural historian and having a pulse on what are people talking about now, because it often reflects the archetypes of like what's actually happening. Um, yeah, and, and those discussions that are taking place right now under this. Austin, you were starting to say something. Yeah, um, I was just going to say that you know part of the Leo, uh, like you know the, uh, the these, all of these issues sort of come into focus through Barbie, in in that Barbie is an image, like it's literally a mm -hmm. mannequin, like a poppet, like it's 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 you know <laughs> with with very certain proportions and features, et cetera, et cetera, and you know with with Leo, um, with fire signs in general, but especially with Leo. Um, you know, so much information is condensed into an image, mm -hmm. right? And what I found uh, accidentally that I think is uh, very complementary uh, to the issues that Barbie raised is I accidentally found out that <clears throat> um, Arnold Schwartz, uh, almost all of Arnold Schwarzenegger's career is also anchored to the Venus retrograde in Leo. And, um, in this case, it's less about like, so there's Arnold Schwarzenegger, but Arnold Schwarzenegger stands in for a whole like um, style of masculinity that was um, hyper visible during the 80s and 90s. Um, and so there was, and of course it's Venus Retrograde and Leo. And so there was a big um, like three-part docu-series uh, reviewing Arnold Schwarzenegger's life and all this on Netflix. And um, I saw that and I wanted to rewatch Pumping Iron, which was a documentary about bodybuilding, um, a much lauded documentary about bodybuilding uh, that was filmed in 1975. I was like, this feels like Venus retrograde in Leo research, right? And so as Kate and I are watching it, she pulls up the chart for when it's being filmed and Venus is retrograde in Leo, right? Mm. <clears throat> and what was interesting about that is that was in 1975, it was before the bodybuilder aesthetic was the like the norm, um, uh, the norm or like laudable or admirable in Hollywood. Um, you didn't see um, male leads having that physique. And Arnold actually complains about it briefly because he's trying to get acting work because this is before he's a movie star. Right. Mm. Um and they they don't want anybody who's like six foot two and two hundred and fifty pounds, right? They're like that. No, Dustin Hoffman is a male lead, like not not you. Um, and then um, you know you can follow the Venus retrograde. His biggest movie was two Venus retrogrades later in nineteen ninety one. That was Terminator two, um, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it was really interesting to see both 
Barbie and Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Arnold Schwarzenegger, who ended up basically being like the template, the the ratio template for the action figure, mm-hmm. right? And for like the action hero. And what struck me is um, it's not until basically right uh, very recently that this this uh, this retrograde didn't start in Virgo, right? And so with Virgo, we're looking at something much more, um, uh, mm, uh, what should we say, um, mercurial, right? Not inherently, uh, you know, mercurial, um, mathematical, right? And you, you think of like the action hero and you think of Barbie and there are mathematical ratios and proportions that define uh, like define those body images. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it felt like, you know, adding, noticing the Arnold um, moving on the same cycle was really interesting. And then by complete accident, I saw something like in my YouTube feed, something Hulk Hogan came up and I was like, what if Hulk Hogan and wrestling is also moving on the Venus retro Venus retrograde in Leo? And sure enough, yes, Hulkamania officially began during the 1983 retrograde. Um, arguably reached its height in 1991. He he was married during a Venus retrograde in Leo. He was divorced during a Venus retrograde in Leo. Uh, he had his uh, like 2015 like racial skirts skirt slur scandal during a Venus retrograde, and that was uh, in Leo. And then that was based on a recording done, a sex tape um, that was recorded during the previous Venus retrograde in Leo. Right. And so, you know, as I told Chris yesterday, I was like, physically absurd blondes seem to be a very, <laughs> seem to be a real theme with this Venus retrograde and Leo cycle. Well, and I, I literally was pulling this up as you were talking because um, you were talking about the, the rise of the kind of hypermuscular bodybuilder image in Hollywood, especially. And I was just remembering things that I learned in grad school about the rise of bodybuilding culture and the ways in which, in a lot of ways, it had been co opted from queer culture that had already been hyper fixated on these like beefcake kinds of men. And there was a specific magazine called Physique Pictorial, um, Pictorial that was one of the first like beefcake mags for like looking at sexy men who were all beefed up and wearing like um, tiny shorts or thongs and things like that. And it was uh, first released in 1951 which is one of the Venus retrograde years. I'm not going to go dig into like what month the first year issue came out, but just even that correlation of being able yeah. to trace this bodybuilding physique that you're that you're identifying identifying with Schwarzenegger um and Hulk Hogan being able to trace it back even further to this beefcake this gay beefcake magazine in 1951 just feels like there's something there for someone to dig into if you're looking for a physique queer culture um history astrology project. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, rewatching the documentary, um, you know, because I wasn't born until 1979. So by the time I was watching TV, you had like He-Man and Arnold and Sylvester Stallone, right? Like that was like, you know, that that was just present as if it had always been. Um, But it was even, uh, it was even a bit of a subculture during the 1975 documentary. It's like right before it, it goes mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things um, that I was struck by um, was that um, I was like, oh, this is wholly Venusian, right? Like there's an aesthetic of function, but it's literally all of the competitions. It's not who can lift the most weight or do the most push-ups. It's not about the ability to perform a task. Um, it's 100% aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And then when I was looking, and then uh, we Ideal, idealized, up- idealized aesthetics. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, idealized in a particular direction along certain criteria. Yeah, and then I'm just this using was... that phrase because that's the parallel with Barbie. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Exactly. Um, and then this was further sort of uh, emphasized to me when I look at Arnold's chart and he has Venus on the rising. And I was like, oh, yeah, like he's not an action hero. He's very like he was a champion in an aesthetic competition for many years and then moved on to be, you know, a an acting performer. Right. And, um, you know, it's not it's not a Mars driven nativity. It might be the aesthetic. It might the, the aesthetic might be martial. Um, but what's funny, he actually has a really, a really nice Sarasvati yoga, which indicates um which dominates the chart, which gives like a great career in the arts. Mm. And I was like, oh, of course, of course he does. He's, he's had a great career in the arts. <laughs> um, but uh, I thought that it was really interesting because the, with the, the bodybuilding, it's, um, you know, it's, it, it sort of, it's, and again, it's an aesthetic of function. And so you have to be, and a lot of them are quite strong, um, but it's not a strength competition. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, no, no, this is primarily in the realm of Venus. This is a sub realm of Venus. This isn't, this isn't um, Mars or Saturn's domain. Um, but yeah, those like all of the like, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure there are people who have the math for like the Barbie proportions, the Arnold proportions, because you have to create them to create action figures, which are, which were the, the Barbies um, uh, marketed uh, to the little boys. Mm-hmm. And also uh blondes and then sun-soaked aesthetic. The body, the you know, the famous location of the bodybuilders was Venice Beach, where Arnold actually was. And I found out recently that Hulk Hogan claimed to be from Venice Beach, even though he's a Florida guy. But that was what people read as like the California blonde tan muscle dude, right? Like the 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 idea um, originates or the idea is anchored to a place. And so to, in order to anchor himself to the idea, he was like, oh yeah, I'm from there. Right. Rather than wherever Florida. Venice Beach plays like a major plot point in the Barbie movie. And right. um, that's actually Ken's uh, like professional designation in the movies that he does beach. So sure. that's really funny. That's really funny um, parallel. Um, so going back to that, actually Ken, the Ken doll was released um under like an actual Venus retrograde, Venus mm -hmm. stationed retrograde when the Ken doll was released. Um, but the founder, Ruth Handler, um, always made it so that Barbie never got, that they never got married and that Barbie never had kids because she said she wanted to emphasize Barbie's independence and ability to pursue other careers outside of relationships or marriage or conventional things like that. So there's some interesting additional like Venus retrograde themes there. Um, and I meant to mention the book I quoted from earlier is titled um, Barbie and Ruth, the story of the world's most famous doll and the woman who created her by Robin Gerber. Um, and here's the chart, just going back to that for the director, Greta Gerwig, who now has become, you know, this huge director with the release of this film with Venus there stationary at nine degrees of Virgo, just like it just stationed in this cycle at Leo. And then um, the person who originally was behind the movie and driving it because it was created by her production company was Margot Robbie, who was born with cancer rising and Leo is her second house of finances. And I was researching this and at first it didn't make sense because I looked up like how much was she paid for Barbie, thinking it would be a lot, but it was $12 million, $12 million 
which didn't sound like a lot to me for a movie that just made just over the weekend $150 million. And they said that her co-star Ryan Gosling was paid the same thing to play Ken. But then I looked into it more and I saw that um, it was actually Margot Robbie's production company that produced it. So she was the primary producer and the one who drove for the movie. So what just happened partially is Venus just went retrograde in her second house and she probably just became like extremely, extremely wealthy, much more than she was before because her production company just had its first huge mega blockbuster, which is just doing crazy numbers. And Venus went retrograde in her second house of finances and wealth. Can you put Greta Gerwig's um, chart back up? Yes. And this is an untimed chart because we don't know her birth time. We do know Margaret. Oh, Robles. so the houses are not... Um... No, no. Okay. Well, then I'm not going to comment on all the things that stood out to me, but I was struck by having Venus in Virgo. If it's in fact a day chart, there's something so fascinating about Venus in Virgo because it's in its fall, but it's also in its primary triplicity rulership. And so there's this thing that happens of like finding support from people who really believe in what you're doing, who are um, your supporters, your followers, your advocates, your um, patrons, the people, and that's the triplicity side of things, but maybe in a way that's not so mainstream, in a way that's like going against, that. then that's the fall, Venus and fall side of things. It's like, what does it mean to find your your wave or your wind or your current in a place that's maybe going against mainstream culture in some way, or, or at the very least, maybe at the margins of what other people are paying attention to. And so anytime I see that Venus and Virgo placement if it's in a day chart, I mean, even if it's in a night chart, it's still got some triplicity, but especially in a day chart, there's this complex thing that happens there. Just interesting. Yeah. Well, and also, and Mercury's there as well, conjunct it in Virgo, and she was also right. the writer, writer of the movie. So she's a Oh, writer. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so she's like a writer director. So that just goes to your point even, even more. Well, and, and Mercury mm -hmm. having so much dignity in Virgo, which we will probably talk about a bit more later in this episode. Yeah. So that's very similar. And um, the last thing, is Aaron Fogel pointed out that this the Venus stationing retro also like fit with the release because Barbie's like kind of a throwback. It's like a doll from the 1950s, mm -hmm. which even itself when released um, was a throwback because it's like the creator was sometime, was sort of like idealizing movies from like the 1950s and what like mm -hmm. idealized, you know, um, sort of men-centric views of women were in Hollywood from the 1950s, so that even once Barbie was released in 1959, like it immediately um, started running up against like second wave feminism in the 1960s that were, were very critical of it and critiqued it. And that was one of the things that was interesting about the director when asked if she grew up with Barbie is she said that her mom was very skeptical of Barbie growing up so that when she was kind of introduced to Barbie, she was also introduced to like the critiques or counterpoints of it at the mm -hmm. same time. And those, some of those contradictions are very much in the film. Um, anyways, there's just a ton of cool, like astrology and the other stuff. I will not continue to go on about Barbie. And I'm glad Austin, you, you balanced it out with the Arnold Schwarzenegger and other stuff. Well, I thought I, I prefer to think that I enriched the discussion. Um, yeah. Well, no, but I, I have, have one more, I have one, one more classic. general point. That uh, start with um, just that um, you know we have this really obvious like these powerful images right whether it's the action figure or the Barbie doll um, and it just it's gotten me thinking about maybe because of my peacock training um, about like how do we relate to these images like to really charged mm -hmm. images right like because on a purely aesthetic level. 
um, you can find something appealing or interesting or like visually enjoyable without feeling like you need to be it, right? Mm -hmm. Right, that happens all the time. But these are images that <clears throat> in um, I think have had a very strong um, ability to compel people to match them or there's a pull there, right? There, there are hooks there. Um, and so, you know, we have a lot of people judging themselves relative to those images and I actually just watched something the other day um by um uh, by a, a clinical researcher about um body dysmorphia with bodybuilders um which gets jokingly called bigorexia um mm -hmm. right which is basically like looking at like arnold and a lot of them would literally look at classic arnold and be like and then compare themselves be like oh not good enough like need to keep going, need to keep going, and obviously, you know, and we obviously have these these images with um, um, with the the in relationship to the Barbie figure, and it just got me thinking about how do we relate to images that like we find appealing or ideal or aspirational, um, you know, is there a way to, um, how should we say, like appreciate an aesthetic without feeling dominated by it? Mm -hmm. Right. Like, that's great that that's a look like that's one of the good looks uh, or an interesting look, um, but without feeling without, um, you know, being put in a psychological position where we are judging others or ourselves in relationship to that as sort of the center of aesthetic value. Well, I think a Venus retrograde is such an ideal time to be asking those exact kinds of questions. Not only is it possible to appreciate something aesthetically without either identifying with it or comparing oneself to it or comparing and criticizing other people to it, definitely be asking those questions. And then also to be asking maybe larger questions of what are the conditions such that these particular images do compel us towards identification mm -hmm. and comparison and criticism and self-criticism? Like what is it socially in terms of how we interact with these images or these toys or these action figures or these bodybuilders? Or these magazines like what is it within our larger social conditions that make us or compel us to feel as if these images are part of our own self-image in some way that our self-image is defined in relation to these and because venus is retrograde which is an ideal time to be reviewing and reflecting and reevaluating and reassessing specifically things around aesthetics i think those are great questions to be bringing to the table right now austin yeah, yeah, yeah. And the um the like what values um are what values or virtues or qualities are those is that like are loaded into the aesthetics, right? Like, right. okay, so like I find that intimidating or I find that appealing. Like what intimidates about that? What appeals mm -hmm. about that? Is it because it's a representation of elegance, of strength, of, you know, it's something that we would like. What is it about like if you feel connected? Um, I have like an how should we say aspirational slash oppressive relationship with an image right um then like what is it what is it that you would like to embody that that image is communicating mm -hmm. and um something you had mentioned earlier michael it made me think of how nick always refers to venus retrograde his primary phrase is challenging consensus mm -hmm. um but i've noticed in this venus retrograde it's also changing consensus like sometimes yeah, hopefully consensus changes during Venus retrogrades and sometimes 
turns. And sometimes you can see it a lot in this instance. There's been a bunch of examples of sometimes a Venus retrograde happens and it hits a person's, even an individual's chart in a certain way. And suddenly the consensus on them changes for the better for some reason. Like, for example, with Greta Gerwig now mm -hmm. becoming huge director at this point now in Hollywood or alternatively you have other people where the consensus changes and suddenly it sours and it goes negative mm -hmm. on that person or that thing I know Austin you were talking about the weekend um and his um the show that kind of failed during this build-up to Venus retrograde over this summer and um somebody on Twitter pointed out that it was actually eight years ago that some of his first big hit singles, like I Can't Feel My Face, became so popular and made him like a household name as a musician under the Venus retrograde eight years ago. But here we see a Venus retrograde in a sort of inversion eight years later. Yeah. Yeah. I they um as far as that challenging or the relationship to consensus, um, I, I think that I like the word reconfiguring. Right. Because, you know, when we look back at some of these earlier examples with Barbie, with like um, uh, Hogan and Arnold, um, we see the the Venus retrograde and Leo like reconfiguring Hollywood at a certain point. And um, wrestling isn't Hollywood, but like a form of mass entertainment, um, like the people's tastes reconfiguring and being reconfigured um, to fit in a different shape. Like the, the popularity of the bodybuilder physique was a reconfiguration um, from the 60s and 70s. Um, but it, I think it's also a good lesson in remembering that changing or things changing is not always uh, an evolutionary process um, right. where better and better and more, you know, whatever um, morally superior things come out of it. It's just like, a, you know, it can just be a, a gear change, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if it's better to have Dustin Hoffman or Arnold Schwarzenegger make more money at the box office. Well, sometimes it just brings up stuff from the past and sometimes stuff from the past can be good. And other times stuff from the past needs to stay there or should have better stayed there. Yeah. Um, or both end like or both end yeah 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 and Great. so just one one final uh thought um it made me wonder whether this venus whether the of the venus retrogrades the five if this one in leo isn't um more impactful on pop culture um because it's venus it's leo right mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's about visibility um and it, it made me think of yep here's one more arnold thing um there was a producer who was interviewed about arnold when he was first trying to get into hollywood and the producer said oh you need to do this 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 as an actor um and arnold said i don't want to be an actor i want to be a star mm. and i was like oh that's 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 some venus and leo shit right there and also probably some good self-awareness mm -hmm. um but like i just wonder because this one's so sun-soaked and visible whether it has more of an impact uh, on the visible um layer of like venus and culture yeah maybe because part of that is also like marketing and there's something around mm -hmm. marketing and what marketing represents because that's one of the things like if you sort of read between the lines in that barbie quote from earlier it's like barbie at least it didn't take off initially because she couldn't get buyers from the like dominant sort of male people that were in charge of like sears and stuff to buy the doll who actually believed that little girls would want to play with an adult doll rather than raise like a baby and mm. be put in like the mother position for that but it was only partially through marketing and like market research and television advertising and things like that that barbie took off that summer and then of course we've seen one of the just like largest movie marketing campaigns 
on many different levels with like Barbie over the summer. So it's like part of that is what we're seeing is the effects of marketing and um, attempts to, to sort of control and manipulate that, that to some extent, whether for positive or negative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of leads directly into all this visibility, um, I think, begs the question of, so where did all the stars go? They're not promoting any of their projects right now. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was the other major news story is there was first a, a writer's strike, but now there's been an actor's strike that started in the middle of July. And that was wild to see because all the actors were out promoting these big movies, both Barbie as well as Oppenheimer. And then all of a sudden the actors went on strike and some of the actors that were out promoting Oppenheimer, like these huge Hollywood stars literally just walked off and left and departed and didn't continue promoting the movie because their union was on strike, which is very like literal and evocative for a Venus retrograde where Venus is moving forward. And all of a sudden she turns around and starts walking away. Mm-hmm. Right. And about to go invisible in the sky. Mm-hmm. Right, you don't see Venus rise um, in evening nor in morning for quite some time. Once you get to once we get once you get into the Venus retrograde, where's Venus? Yeah, um, and then somebody and Christopher in the comments points out that people are eager for good movies too. That was the other big thing. Is this like a huge um, weekend for the movies with um, tons of people? sort of um, reigniting an interest in like going out to the movies or going out to cinema, especially in the, while we're not in a post-COVID world, we're in whatever world we're in at this point after 2020 and and everything that went with that, where there was that real almost like threat where as movie theaters and the experience of going to the movies over and is going to die at this point. It's fascinating what you're, what you brought in about the visibility, Austin, because um, yeah, it looks like Venus is going to go um, under the beams, like around August 3rd, something like that, and then won't appear again um, until as a morning star until like around August 24th. So it's like, it's a solid three weeks that we're not going to see Venus. And so I wonder how, if there are ways in which that might reflect or describe the presence or visibility of these Hollywood stars during the actor strike. It was interesting as, you know, the, uh, if we, uh, from a mythological perspective, Venus is busy in the underworld. Mm. Um, when we don't see Venus in the sky, right? It's not that nothing's happening, quite a bit is happening, but it's it's beneath the surface. It's at a more fundamental level. I don't know, the, when we talked about reconfiguring, you know, a lot of the times deep reconfiguration uh, almost always takes place in, um, in, uh, in somewhere hidden or not visible, right? You think yeah. of but butterflies, right? The, 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 a uh, caterpillar and a butterfly, you need to hide if you're going to transform, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. So I didn't realize until just now the time's getting away from us. And so we're we're far into this. So let's just like go through and get to some of the other stories really quickly. Um, I'm going to skip like Oppenheimer. I have a whole thing on the main one I'm going to mention is just that uh, Venus is retrograde in Leo. The movie is released. So why is that relevant? Well, I went back and it turns out that Los Alamos was built and opened in 1943, and that summer went went retro. Venus went retrograde in the same series in the Virgo, mm-hmm. which would eventually be the Virgo Leo series. So, same thing happened. There was a funny bit about that, which is that um, they encouraged all the scientists to bring their families so they could live and work there in secrecy. Um, but the average age of the scientists was like 25, and they had families. 
So what started happening is that there, you know, after they were done with their work, there was apparently a lot of um, sex going on, and there was a baby boom. Where in the first year there was like eighty babies born on this small like base in Los Alamos, um, and I assume a lot of that took place like in that Venus retrograde that first summer ended up being relevant, and it was even like a small reference to it in the movie that occurred at one point as well. So um, Nick Digg and Best and I are going to do a casual astrology episode where we talk in more depth about both of those two movies. I'll release that for patrons here, I think, in the next few days. Um, so let's move into some other stories. I talked a lot in previous months about how this Venus retrograde, I always think about it, how eight years ago, Venus went retrograde in Leo um, conjunct Jupiter and the Supreme Court in the United States legalized same-sex marriage. And in the episode that I did earlier this month with Gary Lorenzen, we discovered that if you take that same retrograde back to 1983, there was this interesting thing where Newsweek published a cover story that featured um, a gay couple for the first time in any major national print magazine um, in the same exact retrograde in August of 1983. So then when that would eventually repeats in 2015, you see this similar theme or an echo of that with um, same-sex marriage being legalized. So I'd been kind of paying attention to what would happen this summer, and I'm still paying attention to stories related to that. Um, there has been, on the one hand, this not good Supreme Court ruling that allowed businesses to refuse some services to LGBTQ customers. And I think that's one major thing that just happened this summer that could have much more far-ranging implications than it might even seem like at this point that are not good and connected in with that Venus retrograde cycle in terms of um, just you know rights for different, different people. And then also we've seen a lot of weird um, pushback, especially during Pride in June, some retailers were like um, pulling back some of their stuff in terms of pride displays and things like that due to conservative backlash. And I thought that was also kind of connected with this, but in a weird way where we were seeing almost like an inversion of some of the things that we saw eight years ago, where it seemed like op things were opening up and becoming more acceptable. It, well, it's the, I, I don't know if you said it, but I know you were thinking at looking at Venus station with Jupiter eight years ago versus um, the lead up to the retrograde being Venus with Mars, mm -hmm. right? Mars contesting, um, attacking, arguing. But I guess the good news is that Venus's direct station is extremely entangled with Jupiter in Venus's sign. Mm -hmm. Right. So some, well, some, and of, some of the, the okay. oh, go ahead. I was just going to say some of the other things that feel like differences between these two cycles um, yes, the the Venus station um, happening around the conjunction with Jupiter, close to a conjunction with Jupiter in 2015. Um, but the um, Obergfell and Hodges decision in 2015 and the um, 303 creative decision this summer, um, giving the Supreme Court decision, giving businesses the right to refuse services to LGBTQ people. It's fascinating to me that both of those happened in the pre-retrograde shadow when Venus was at its uh, maximum elongation before stationing retrograde. So there's something symbolically that I think is worth thinking about, about what does it mean for Venus to get, in a sense, like as far as it can go before being pulled back in another direction. Mm -hmm. And that in both of these cases, even though they seem to be at opposite sides of a political spectrum in terms of advancing LGBTQ rights or um, revoking LGBTQ rights and civil liberties, 
um, while being at opposite sides politically, they both have this sense of like something happening. And then the retrograde is almost like the integration period of like, how are we as a society going to integrate and respond to this decision that's been made by the highest court in the land? And Austin is pointing to the the station um, with, uh, the, or the pre-retrograde uh, station being with Mars versus with Jupiter. Another big difference between these, these um, retrograde cycles is that in 2015, this retrograde was happening in a trine to Uranus. And now in um, 2023, this retrograde cycle is happening in a square to Uranus. And in both of them, um, Venus is making multiple exact aspects with Uranus. And I'm just thinking about the difference. I mean, that's part of what we get to observe right now, right? Is like, what's the difference between a Venus retrograde and Leo that's square to Uranus versus one that's trying Uranus? Both have this potential for destabilizing or disrupting or um, some sort of radical change in maybe cultural currents and that sort of reconfiguration or disruption of the consensus that you were pointing to earlier, um, but one with that maybe has a little bit more of a productive flow to it, and one that's maybe encountering a bit more resistance or demanding some sort of adjustment or even some sort of conflict in response to these sorts of decisions is some of the ways we can think about the not only the, the repetition of the Venus retrograde, but how is that Venus retrograde cycle in Leo configured to other planets happening where they are in the sky, because that's going to give us a lot about like, why is this story not the same as it was eight years ago? I think that's a really good point. Just thinking about the the quality of a trine versus a square, like back to astrology 101, like the like the the a Venus Jupiter, or excuse me, Venus Uranus relationship that's pretty smooth. Yeah. Where like, you know, trines often seem natural. Like uh, when, when we're looking at mundane astrology, it's like, oh, well, of course that happened then. Like it, it was just ready, you know, it was ready to happen versus the square, which, as you said, is much more contested, jagged, back and forth. Like how do how do we make room for this and that can, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's a really good point. I was just going to mention, um, I think the connection with Leo, I forgot to mention here that's relevant in this discussion as well as previous ones is there's a keyword of Venus and Leo and, and authenticity. Right. Authentic authenticity is like super important to Leo. And that's one of the th common themes I think we're coming back to here in these discussions of like, what does it take to be able to live authentically to yourself and to have mm -hmm. society accept or at least not try to oppress that versus, um, you know, what is authenticity in terms of uh, things like appearance and things like that and the different um, constraints and tensions surrounding that that each individual has all those are like related themes totally and I, I mean it's a big part of how I'm thinking about the um, Venus squares the exact squares with Uranus that we will probably get into in, in the discussion but just like what does it mean to experience desire or pleasure in an authentic way what are the social conditions that make it difficult to experience what we might think of as your true desires or the true expanse of your desires, or what is the full capacity of your ability to experience pleasure? And what are the social constraints that might make that difficult, if not impossible, just in terms of like right now, we're talking about legal precedents and how that shapes um, how laws are enforced on people's bodies and lives, but also the ways in which those things become internalized. Like um, Audre Lorde, this isn't an exact quote, but Audre Lorde um, was famous for having um, articulated the ways that the oppressor lives within as well. 
uh, that we can do a lot of work to try to change society, but in what ways are we policing our own desires? In what ways are we policing our own pleasures? And I'm not just talking here about sexuality or sexual orientation or our erotic entanglements, but all the ways in which we allow ourselves to feel desire or want towards some things and not other things is a matter of social conditions, but also a matter of how we've internalized those things as well. And with Venus and Uranus in these squares right now, both in fixed signs, there's a sense of like, there's a really deeply entrenched way of like, this is the way that things have to be. And so that square across these fixed signs pushing towards, yes, authenticity, which you know I, I associate with Leo, but I also associate in some ways with Uranus because so much of Uranus mm. has to do with breaking away from social norms and expectations, breaking away from what we've been told it has to be and moving in new directions that give us access to more optimal freedom and greater opportunity for authenticity. And so that um, those those keywords of Venus and Leo, I think, are particularly pronounced right now because of the hard push from the square um, with Uranus. And then I was thinking also, Chris asked earlier, I think this was before we started recording, if there were any other kind of like Venus retrograde stories that we were tracking. And I just shared that um, in a way that I'm just observing to see what unfolds that actually the day that Venus stationed retrograde this year on July 23rd, I was actually at a protest at the state house um, here in Columbus, Ohio, where I live, because earlier in the week, a drag ban um, bill had been introduced in Ohio. Um, and it was just striking to me to um, notice the, yes, this wave of pushback, this conservative pushback against LGBTQ people, our lives, our livability, our rights, our civil liberties, but also just our ability to show up in public life, that that's part of what a bill like this is attempting to prohibit mm. is that queer people, trans people, people performing drag aren't even allowed to be in public. Like that prohibition of we don't want to see you, we don't want you to have the opportunity to exist in public life is part of what, at least for me in my life, but also in the state where I live, lined up with the very start of this Venus retrograde. So I'm going to be interested and invested in seeing how this Venus retrograde cycle aligns with that particular legislation moving through our state house and, and also the kind of pushback it receives, because that's what's interesting to me. The, the start of the retrograde cycle wasn't the bill itself that came a few days earlier, but what came was the pushback. And there are ways in which we can think about... Mm, resistance and struggle itself as evidence of freedom. How do we know that we are free? We know that we are free because we are struggling for our freedom. Like Angela Davis teaches us that freedom is a constant struggle. And as I've lived with that, that phrase for a lot of years now, the more and more I've realized that we, we know we are free because we are capable of struggle, because we are capable of pushing back against oppressive regimes or, or legislatures and things like that. And I was also thinking about this quote from Rachel Pollack, um, who's a brilliant, who was a brilliant tarot reader and writer and teacher who died um, in April this year, um, who was a trans elder. And she said years ago, um, in talking about the conservative pushback against LGBTQ people at that time, she said, you don't forbid the things that don't exist. You don't make laws to prohibit drag because drag isn't happening. You don't make laws to criminalize healthcare for trans people because that healthcare isn't happening. So there's a way in which even in the midst of struggle and even in the midst of these really oppressive 
um, conservative legislative moves, we can also recognize that as an affirmation of our existence. We're here. The, these laws are being introduced and passed and debated and vetoed, et cetera, um, because our existence cannot actually be contested. And so I'm just thinking about that in relation to the Venus-Uranus squares as part of this Venus retrograde cycle too, that in what ways is that hard push for freedom and authenticity against the kind of um, regressive forces of political culture, in what ways is that in and of itself also an affirmation of our existence and our ability to push back? The pushback is um, that the, the suppression or the oppression is a necessary condition for the pushback. And mm -hmm. the, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, that That's makes a really good sense. points. It makes total sense because I learned something when I studied history of astrology with Nick Campion years ago, where um, there were all these anti-astrology laws that were passed in the Roman Empire, and right. people would assume that meant that astrology wasn't being practiced. But as he said, no, it's actually the opposite. When they're passing all those laws, it means it is being practiced, and they're trying to suppress it, but sometimes not successfully if they have to keep passing these laws over and over again. Right. Well, and actually, Columbus, Ohio, where I live, um, was the first city in the United States to pass an anti-cross-dressing law in 1848. Um, and so there's a way in which this bill, which is not exactly about cross-dressing, but is also about cross-dressing, because drag is part of the way it's, drag is defined in the bill is people performing in public space in, and presenting a gender that's different than the gender they were assigned at birth, which is by definition cross-dressing. Um, and, and similar history of like, why was that law passed in Columbus, Ohio in 1848? Not because no one was cross-dressing, not because there were no gender non-conforming people. And so there's a way in which even as we reach back to these histories and see like, well, shit, that shouldn't have happened. That, that's not great that that law was in place. We can also see ourselves in that history. That's part of what Rachel Pollack was pointing to is that even what you're pointing to, Chris, we can look at these laws forbidding astrology in the ancient Roman Empire. And we can see our lineage, we can see our ancestors in those laws because they those laws wouldn't have been put into place if people hadn't been practicing astrology. These laws wouldn't be being introduced if there weren't queer and trans people, if there weren't LGBTQ people, if there weren't drag performers and drag artists. Um, yeah, so we we it's there's a way in which even the oppression is an affirmation of our existence. Yeah, it's a form sure. of visibility. Yeah. Historically. Yeah. That's yeah. I mean, so there's, you know, so much that you said there that um, you know, was uh I, I'm not I couldn't say it better or really add to it. Um, but going back a little bit, there's just one point that you made about looking at your own relationship to desire. Oh right? yeah. And like, <clears throat> you know, um that's um so say like that's something everybody is doing all of the time right because desire is desire is complicated desire is desires can contradict one another um desires like uh <clears throat> yeah desires can get you in trouble uh, et cetera, et cetera. and so we all like every mostly unconsciously but everybody has a sort of way that they like I, I think guess I think of it as a garden um, because I'm cancerizing. Um, but it's like, what are you weeding out? What are you watering? What are you fertilizing? 
like what what is allowed to thrive like which one you know who are you which which desires are you cultivating and did you get your ideas about or you know are your ideas about gardening you know giving you the bouquets that you desire or are you you know did you get instructions from home depot and uh it's you know it's not really uh you really didn't want uh just all sunflowers all the time um but that like that's uh, that's uh, i feel like that's a very natural and uh, I was going to say useful thing to do during Venus retrogrades because it you're pulled to it anyway. I um, mean, in this case with the Venus retrograde in Leo, like it, the desires are intersecting more with visibility, whether mm -hmm. we're talking about social issues where is this kind of desire legal to um, uh, is it legal for it to be visible in public? Mm -hmm. Right. But then also like, you know, of our desires, like how, how does visibility impact our relationship to, to desires? Do we maybe not want to see anybody? Do we not want to get caught, um, desiring? It makes me think of like, I don't know, like third grade dynamic playground dynamics mm -hmm. where the worst thing in the world was to have your crush on somebody else revealed and your desire exposed. Yeah. Right. And imagine that for queer people. Yeah. Um, so it seems like, and that's one of the things I was looking for and we'll, we'll continue to pay attention to, and hopefully there'll be more positive things that happen during the course of this retrograde, but paying attention to, it seems like the next step in this uh, compared to eight years ago with some of the developments happening with queer and trans people and whether that's going to be part of the continued story this summer, or if there'll be other major news stories, you know, we'll see in the coming month or two. Well, and I think especially to that last point about trans people, it's it goes beyond the Venus retrograde. Um, that that's one of the major news stories that I've been watching over the last you know, several years, but also this year, um, is the exponential um, um, number of anti-trans bills being introduced in the United States right now. Um, and as of yesterday, it was a total of five hundred and sixty-three. 563 anti-trans bills being introduced or debated or passed into law or vetoed, et cetera, somewhere in the legislative process. Um, and that ranges everything from bans on trans-affirming healthcare or prohibitions or restrictions on access to public facilities like bathroom or prohibitions on athletes who can or cannot compete in particular sports that align with the gender that um, the gender that they identify as and, and other things as well, um, all kinds of things related to these um, bills. And we really see the spark of this, like this steep escalation of anti-trans legislation in the U.S., but also abroad, um, really started in 2021 with the Saturn-Uranus squares. Um, there were hundreds fewer bills before that year. And then within one year, hundreds of bills were being introduced. And we're still seeing... And most of them were still while Saturn was in an Aquarius squaring Uranus. Um, and, you know, it's like, and so what, what was significant about 2021, in addition to Saturn squaring Uranus, it was the wake of the 2020 election. So we see this massive conservative backlash after Biden was elected, after Trump was defeated, and transgender people are the most recent mm, scapegoat or political pawn for really whipping up a conservative base. 
um, preying on the kind of deeply entrenched anxieties around gender and saying, this is the problem, not gun violence, not um, systemic racism, not poverty, not ecological devastation, but trans people and trans people's rights to exist and live in the world. And like, I guess it goes without saying, but this is a public platform, so maybe it's worth saying, these laws are unconscionable, they are reprehensible, um, and that we have plenty of historical examples of what happens when there's any sort of laws being passed that prohibit the visibility or the, the public visibility or the existence of particular populations. We see how that goes historically, and it doesn't go well. What's different, though, now, or one of the things I'm observing, this is what I'm tracking in terms of the, the news stories of the summer of really June and July, is one of the things that seems different now that Saturn has gone into Pisces. A lot of these bills are still being introduced and debated, but there's this another, another wave of the story where a lot of these bills that have been passed by legislatures are either getting vetoed by governors or they are getting blocked or overturned by federal judges. Many of those federal judges who were appointed by Trump, which even that is mind boggling to me. And so part of what we're seeing in the ongoing development of this story is something like the back and forth or the undecidability of these laws, these laws getting advanced, they're getting passed by legislatures, and then they're getting blocked or they're getting passed and then they're getting vetoed. And it's just making me think of well, Saturn, because we're 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 talking about laws, we're talking about restrictions being put on people's bodies and bodily autonomy, um, and then Pisces because of its mutability and its double-bodiedness and its both andness and its back and forth quality of some one day it's this and then the next day it's vetoed or one day it looks like we're going to have to move out of this state because it's not safe to be a trans person here anymore and then the next day a federal judge blocks that ban it's like oh maybe we're okay for another few days. Um, and so that's the that's one of the big stories that I'm watching unfold right now, specifically in relation to, I guess, Saturn and Pisces. And there's reasons that I'm looking at Saturn that we don't have time to get into today in terms of the role of the Saturn cycle in the history of LGBTQ liberation movements. But there's something to be said for how these developments have shifted after the rapid acceleration and exponential growth of anti-trans legislation during the Saturn-Uranus square. And now Saturn's in moving towards a sextile with Uranus, and we'll see what happens at the sextile if any of this story shifts in a different direction once that sextile is perfected. Really, it makes me think of what you said earlier about Venus and just that Venus gets as far as she can in her distance from the sun, but then the gravity of the sun like pulls her back and there's like this check on it and things move backwards for a period, but then eventually Venus starts moving forward again. And there's this constant back and forth motion of like progress and then pushback and little bits of progress and pushback. And maybe that's part of why Venus is retrograde. Mm -hmm. um, and also it's like slightly related, but it reminds me of this quote from the I'm going to bring another Barbie quote into this, but the quote was really powerful where at one point in the movie, one of the main characters said, um, we mothers stand still so our daughters can look back and see how far they've come. Um, and that quote kind of makes me think of part of what you're talking about in a parallel way, even though it's hmm. obviously talking about something different. Yeah, I would. I, I want to sit with that quote a lot longer um, in terms of what does that mean for, what does that say about mothers or what does that, what, it's it's a beautiful idea and also it also that that framing requires mothers to not move forward anymore and that there's a there's a mm, 
feminist response to that coming up for me of like, well, if you're a mother, you have to give up moving forward at a certain point. Um, yeah, I'll sit with that. I don't want to respond too much because I that's the first time I've heard that quote, but um, but definitely I like the way that you're connecting that back to Venus's maximum elongation before being pulled back by gravity in terms of this like advancing and moving back. And I think there's, yeah, maybe something to think about in terms of the the back and forth of Saturn and Pisces and the way that these, these laws are being debated and passed and vetoed and blocked. And that is coinciding with the Venus retrograde square Uranus. So there's something there that we could think about. For sure. For sure. Um, all right. So let's jam through just a couple more news stories. Michael, I know you had one about Saturn and Pisces and water stuff that seemed very relevant. Oh yeah, sure. Um, this was a headline that was came out um, earlier in July that um, almost half of the U.S.'s tap water is estimated to have what are called forever chemicals, according to a new study. And forever chemicals are um, per and polyfluorinated alkyl substances. Um, there's about 12,000 of them, and this is the first major study that's tested tap water um, in various regions around the U.S., both um, from um, private wells, but also from like public um, watersheds to see like how much of our water actually have these forever chemicals in them. Um, these forever chemicals have been linked to lots of health problems, and cer including certain forms of cancer, although they're still studying um, how much density of these chemicals is in the water and how much density of these chemicals is in our bodies and what kinds of health concerns can these be tied to. Um, but one of the um, things, one of the pieces that I found when I was re reading about this and trying to understand more what was going on is that before the study even came out, um, there had already been another study that had shown that 95% of Americans have detectable levels of these forever chemicals in our blood. So we have more than almost half of the U.S. water supply is now ha has tested positive for having these chemicals, and we already know that most of us have some detectable amount of these in our bodies. And I was just thinking about the symbolism of Saturn and Saturn being the planet associated with time and duration and things that end, but also things that don't end, the things that continue indefinitely, and the ways, and, and Saturn and Pisces, a water sign, and the ways in which now these forever chemicals are being detected in our water supplies. And it's a thing that um, that technology is being developed to see, like, is there a way to filter these, these chemicals out of our water? Um, but we're going to be living with the consequences of this for a long time. And I want to be careful to say, like, it's not like Saturn moved into Pisces in March, and now there's all these forever chemicals in our water. Obviously, this is something that's been building for decades, but the alignment that feels like maybe poetic or symbolic in some way is that this study and the realization or the recognition of just how many or how much of these forever chemicals are in our water supplies in the U.S. came out coinciding with um with Venus and Pisces, but also Venus retrograde in Pisces. It's like looking back almost as if to ask the question, what have we done? How did we get here? That was, yeah, that was a headline that stood out to me in terms of um, thinking about that alongside Saturn and Pisces. For sure. Yeah, well, totally. Saturn didn't create it, but Saturn in Pisces shifts the awareness. It shifts yeah. the Saturnian gaze. And of course, uh, lead, Saturn's um, Saturn's noble, uh, excuse me, Saturn's metal, um, is a notoriously poisonous metal, um, mm -hmm. and we see Saturn associated with poison in lots of old texts, mm -hmm. and, and a permanent poison, right, uh, is very uh, that is waterborne is 
makes me really happy. I'm on well water. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, and sometimes it's just about awareness. Like you said, Michael, and that came up actually in the AIDS episode that we just did, that it was like the Saturn-Pluto conjunction seemed to coincide with suddenly the world becoming aware that AIDS right. existed and naming it was really close to the Saturn-Pluto conjunction. And there was something really striking about that realization mm -hmm. that sometimes the transits, the mundane transits are showing us the collective becoming aware of something, like humanity becoming aware of or recognizing something. And that's really you know, insightful about something about the nature of astrology there that's worth exploring. I think that's right. And I, I um, for those of you who are listening to this episode, if you have not listened to the episode, um, looking at the AIDS epidemic pandemic um, in relation to the history of astrology and how that impacted not only um, gay communities and global populations, but also very specifically the astrology community. Um, I hope you go back and listen to it because it was a really fantastic episode. And that piece about the, the astrology or the transits, specifically the transits part of astrology, describing when things emerge into collective consciousness, not necessarily when they started, but when we become aware of them in some sort of substantial way, I think is really insightful. Um, and, it, and it lined up with one of the other headlines that stood out to me in July, which is um, the week of July 4th through 8th reached the highest averaged global temperatures on record. Um, and that's really striking to me because, of course, we can't we can't um, simplify uh, the entire the entire complexity of climate collapse or climate crisis into this one statistic of like, oh no, this that what's the astrology of climate change or climate collapse because of this event? But what we can look at here is what's the astrology of this moment that lines up with this record breaking heat on the planet, and what's the stands out to me is the Uranus moving through Taurus, Uranus being a planet of disruption, of unsettling things, but also breakdowns of systems and breakthroughs of barriers, moving through an earth sign, a, a fixed earth sign of like, this is the way things have been. These are the um, kind of substantial, reliable, material consistencies of our lives. And that being disrupted in some way, we could say that there's probably a lot of climate change, climate collapse, climate crisis stories that have coincided with Uranus's move through Taurus. But of course, those crises were already happening well before Uranus moving into Taurus. What's interesting here is that this report came out while Mars was in Leo squaring Uranus. And Mars being a hot and fiery planet already, Mars being in a fire sign, a fixed fire sign, squaring Uranus in a fixed Earth sign, just felt like there was some symbolic resonance or um, significance to the, these record-breaking temperatures on our on our planet coinciding with this particular square between Mars and Uranus. And I just, I, because I was curious, I looked back to um, when was the last time that Mars was um, squaring uh, Uranus in Taurus? Um, and it was back in 2021 um, because Mars, is, Mars had that long retrograde in Gemini. So it's been a while since Mars was in Leo. And June, July of 2021 was also reported as the hottest temperatures for the planet, um, global average temperature recorded at that point. And so there's just something there. I'm not saying that two occurrences is necessarily a pattern, but it's worth watching now. Like, all right, what's going to happen with global average temperatures each time Mars moves through Leo and squares Uranus and Taurus, which will happen again, um, I believe, in 2024. Um, into 2025, because uh, uh, Mars is going to have a retrograde in Leo. Um, 
2024, 2025. So that'll be a potentially significant turning point in that story because of the duration that Mars is going to be in that square. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and different like Rhodes is on fire right now. And there's just some really crazy images from around the world. Um, all right. So I think that's good. We're going over time for news. So I want to move in and talk about August at that point. If At this point, if it sounds good to both of you. Yeah, sounds great. Yep. All right. So let me put the alignments calendar back up. Here is the image for August again, where we see that full moon in Aquarius right on the first of the month as the thing that we're starting out with right at the top of the month. Of course, um, all of the Venus retrograde stuff that we've been talking about is still all extremely relevant because we're still now very early on August 1st in the Venus retrograde cycle and still in the first half of it for essentially the first half of August. So um, we don't have to repeat all the Venus retrograde discussions again, but that's kind of the backdrop as we head into the first and second week of August is still in the thick of the Venus retrograde. And then we have this full moon in the sign of Aquarius right at the top of the month to start us off. Um, so how are we feeling about this full moon? I see that um, Mars is exactly trying Jupiter on this day, which is kind of a positive grounding aspect uh, to a certain extent. And the moon is squaring Jupiter. So we have some positive influences coming in with this full moon, despite otherwise being in the midst of the Venus retrograde. Yeah, I mean, especially the squares from Jupiter to the sun and moon. I mean, it's a loose square, but like four degrees um, does look like it's going to give some stability to the lunation, especially if, um, that all three of those planets are also in fixed signs. So it feels like some sort of stabilizing support that's available to this lunation, things that are started around this lunation. Um, I guess with thinking about the sun in Leo and the moon in Aquarius, I'm thinking about like this polarity between what's at the center and what's at the margin, the sun being a kind of central organizing principle, both in terms of its placement in the solar system, everything orbits around the sun, but also in terms of ancient astrology, the sun being at the center of the Chaldean order of the planet. So like the sun in Leo really has this like, what is at the center of things question, but Aquarius is ruled by Saturn, which is the farthest visible planet. I kind of think of Aquarius often as like the outer edges of things. And so we have this polarity between what's at the center and what's at the edges or at the limits or at the margins or at the leading edge of things. Hmm. And with that kind of polarity, I'm thinking about this feminist adage of the personal is political, of like, what is it that is about me, about my life, that what is it I'm going through, my experiences, my suffering, and what happens if we take this broader Aquarius view, this kind of aerial full systems perspective and recognize that our personal experiences are actually woven into these larger structures and stories, and what does that do for us to be able to see how what feels very much about me or my experiences or what feels very personal here at the center of my life is actually part of something much bigger than me. That's some of, some of the things I'm thinking about with this new moon or full moon. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I like that the moon is Although it's applying to a square and it's a somewhat challenging aspect, at least it's applying to the benefic Ju Jupiter after it hits that opposition with the sun so that perhaps there's some positive affirmation of that in terms of the reconciliation between the sort of almost like self-centeredness of the Leo placement of the sun and Venus versus the more focus on those living at the periphery with Aquarius. Mm -hmm. 
How do you feel about this full moon, uh, Austin? Well, I like the moon's application to Jupiter. You know, that is, um, you know, I was like it, what should I say? It, it brings into focus the stabilization, which is one of Jupiter's um, sort of root abilities um, that's, um, uh, that, that's further, um, blah, um, that's also there with Taurus, right? Like Jupiter mm -hmm. likes to stabilize things, right? Be like, well, we don't all agree, but let's all agree to have a conversation about it, right? Or we don't, like things aren't going great and we can't fix everything, but like, let's take a moment and, you know, like Jupiter likes, like tries to calm things down to get to a workable place. And it's interesting because, you know, it's a square. Um, the, it's not the moon in Aquarius's vibe. It's not the sun in Leo's vibe, but it's at least, uh, you know, Jupiter, even when ineffective, at least tries to bring about a better situation. Um ever so every now and again it can uh, uh it can create a worse situation but usually even somebody trying to help is helpful um i'm more i guess i'm more interested or i'm i'm doing more thinking about the exact mercury saturn opposition mm -hmm. uh, that's occurring at the same time and saturn's um the ruler of aquarius right because one way to look at um this full moon with sun in with the sun in leo and the moon in aquarius is sun saturn dynamics right there's the sun this is like oh this is what i kind of want to do this is what i'm trying to do uh this is what feels natural but then saturn like these are the these are my obligations that i've made these are my responsibilities um and then these are these are the challenges presented by my environment which i may not have chosen but it is uh necessary that i figure out what to do about them right like mm -hmm. the part of necessity like okay well this isn't part of the plan but it's real so how do i you know how do i figure that and with that you know the mercury and virgo which we're going to have for most of the month you know uh, kind of inaugurates a big as we say, problem diagnosing and then fact-finding and solution engineering sort of sequence, right? Where I don't think a lot of the, the problems are going to be immediately soluble, right? Because we know that Mercury, you know, even on a personal level, um, because uh, Mercury's in Virgo, but Mercury's planning to do a retrograde in Virgo. And so we have this, um, you know, uh, often when planets plan to do a retrograde, especially Mercury and Venus, um, the problems or, you know, situations need three passes in order to get it right, right? It's not a simple thing. You need to look at it one way, then look at it the, um, you know, from a different angle, and then you can kind of, you know, triangulate as to what a good approach might be. And so this, uh, the full moon is sort of, starting that right because it's it's showing the um you know the uh, it's showing the how to navigate these problems or you know problems is maybe too defined a word for saturn and pisces like michael was saying earlier it's like saturn and pisces is very like is this happening is this not happening what are the rules are there no rules should there be rules what you know it's like uh, it's very, uh, I think of uh, Leonard Cohen, like things are, things going to slide, slide in all directions, um, won't be nothing you could measure anymore, where it's like, I'm not even sure what's happening. And so if I'm not sure what's happening, how do I quote unquote fix it? Is there a problem? Is it going in this direction? And that, you know, this is, 
maybe I'm channeling perplexed Mercury and Virgo, looking at looking at an era of time um, where the the rules, the boundaries, you know, what is solid is given to us by Saturn and Pisces. <laughs> yeah, well, and also this degree that Mercury is at when it opposes Saturn, it's coming up to those degrees where Mars and Saturn recently just opposed at the end of July. So that combined with this being a full moon where the moon is at uh, its brightest, it might be like bringing to light or um, bringing to the focus of communication some of the major tensions that maybe culminated that mm -hmm. I, I noticed a number of people were having around the time of that Mars-Saturn opposition and some of the um, intractable issues that came up at that time around when Venus was stationing um, retrograde at the same time, which is often tied in with many of those stories. That Mars-Saturn, um, which was directly on top of and opposing my Mars-Saturn, gave me the worst gas I've ever had. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty literal. Yeah, yeah, I was just like, like sitting there holding my guts, Virgo, um, mm -hmm. and just war criming myself for hours. I was like, wow. well, at the same time, you know, on an astrologer level, I was like, if this is the worst that I get from this transit, I accept. Yeah, I saw some people who, as soon as Mars entered into Virgo and ingressed, it started that sign-based opposition with Saturn, and like the yeah. Mars-Saturn opposition stories began almost immediately, and it was sometimes just these issues of these really difficult situations where you're stuck in a really hard place, but you have to just keep moving forward, and you have to just grin and, and bear it, or at least bear through it. Mm -hmm. um, until you got through the exact opposition. And then there started to be this receding of some of the tensions to a certain extent. And that's one of the things I like about this full moon, at least, is here we see Mars, at least, moving into that trine with Jupiter, which is now mm -hmm. providing some relief and the loosening and, and some freedom or loosening of some of the restrictions that were coming with the Mars-Saturn opposition in July. Yeah, and I yeah, think I, like, no. oh, sorry, me? Yeah, um, yeah, I was just going to say, like, in terms of thinking about the Mars-Saturn opposition in relation to the Mercury-Saturn opposition, that, yeah, absolutely, we're getting, as Mercury is opposing Saturn, we're getting a development in the Mars-Saturn story, because now Mars is moving into that trine with Jupiter. So it's like, whatever that conflict or friction or um, difficulty was, is given, being given a little bit more ease or space or support or freedom. I like that you use that word, Chris. Um, and at the same time, something else is coming into opposition. And so with Mercury opposing Saturn, it feels like mm, things like prohibitions around what we can say or not say, or writer's block, or like um, not being able to think in the ways that we want to, or some sort of limits or constriction around how we're learning, like these sorts of mercurial themes. But I'm also thinking about the fact that Mercury has a lot of dignity here. Like Mercury is not coming into this opposition necessarily um, without resources. Mercury is in its domicile and its exaltation. So it's like it has a lot of capacity to hone those analytical, critical thinking skills towards whatever this opposition is, whatever this conflict or disagreement or um, just different perspectives are. And I think maybe one of the ways that those skills or resources for folks, you know, looking at this transit in their own charts or how it might show up in their own lives, one of the things that that might be utilized towards is thinking about that while they are in opposition, oppositions, um, planets in opposition do share something, um, that they're not in aversion to one another. And the thing that they share here 
with Mercury and Virgo and Saturn and Pisces is they share mutability. They share the capacity to see more than one perspective or to shift from one thing into another, that adaptation and that, that ability to change course or redirect that I associate with mutable signs that even in this conflict, it's like what whatever that conflict describes for people that perhaps the way through is to direct those mercurial skills towards analysis and critical thinking towards some sort of um, what Adrian Marie Brown describes as intentional adaptation. What other possibilities are available to us here? Um, it makes me think about years ago, I can't even remember what book this was in, um, but Bell Hooks wrote something about something to the effect of critical thinking starts when we get beyond either or. And so inside of this opposition with both planets and these mutable signs, it feels like, yeah, critical thinking, Mercury and Virgo, we can access those resources more when we start attending to what are the other possibilities other than what seems to be this diametric opposition. Something like that could be a way through for people as, as, we, as we move into that um, opposition on the first. Love that. That's a really great point that the the flexibility of the two mutable placements is their opportunity for reconciliation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's pretty major in terms of our first um, thing of the month is just starting off right off the bat with a full moon uh, shining the light on some issues. Um, after that, over the next few days, um, Mercury moves up towards this conjunction with Mars, and it gets really kind of close to this conjunction of Mars with Mars, so that that's one of the underlying energies of the month is, on the one hand, we have this um, kind of tense and typically kind of combative or volatile conjunction of Mercury conjunct Mars, which can be very argumentative that's forming but never completes. Um, but then on the other hand, in the first week, we have Mercury moving from the opposition with Saturn and then moving into a somewhat uh, calming or not restraining, but like cooling uh, trine from Jupiter that is kind of helping it out at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the, the hardest things we kind of have to reconcile in this forecast is what does it mean to have, especially in the second half of the month, like Mercury retrograde in Virgo eventually conjunct Mars, but having a trine with Jupiter at the same time that's kind of balancing it out? Yeah. Well, I well, mean, oh, go ahead, Austin. Thank you. Um, you know, on a, I should say, to simplify for a little bit, you know, as the month begins, Mercury is opposed Saturn and in the same sign as Mars. And that's almost the entire month, right? We have Mercury by sign axis dealing with both malefics, right? And more precisely at different times. And so it's a good thing Mercury is exalted um, because there's a lot to, there's a lot to figure out. Right. And then that what we figure out or decide to, you know, delay figuring out um, if that's the the conclusion we come to, like whatever, whatever uh, Mercury figures out, Mars will act on. Right. Mm -hmm. And but that but Saturn might contest that. So, you know, you get a you get some of those um, rock in a hard place or under pressure Mars Saturn dynamics with Mercury, right? It's not just like, oh, figure things out at whatever your time frame is. Like, no, this, if we don't get this done by next Tuesday, then the, you know, then blah, X, Y, and Z happen. And so in that context, the trying to Jupiter, any help when you're in a pressurized situation is much appreciated, right? Mm -hmm. And so, well, and okay, yeah, yeah, go ahead. 
I was just going to say that the that that's I I love that you're bringing attention to the the extended co-presence with Mercury and Mars and Virgo with the the sign based opposition with Saturn, um, and that's really like the setup leading up to this Mercury retrograde in Virgo. But just just days after Mercury stations retrograde, Mars will leave Virgo, and Mercury gets to revisit Jupiter in the in the aftermath of that. So we have this first trine between Mercury and Jupiter on August 9th. And then Ju Mercury is going to make two more trines with Jupiter on September 4th and then September 25th. And that's going to be without Mars's interference. So there's something about, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I could just use some very simple language. It's like, there's going to, there's some problems that are going to be introduced here preceding Mercury's retrograde. And then at least part of that situation is going to move on. And Mercury is going to, as Mercury goes through this process of revisiting the situation or reviewing or reevaluating along that way, it's also going to revisit the support from Jupiter. Um, and that's like, I just, it gives me a lot of hope for the, mm, the functionality of this upcoming Mercury retrograde because Mercury is so dignified in its domicile and exaltation because it's being overcome by this trine from Jupiter by sign the whole time, but also three exact um, trines. It just looks like there's a lot of resources available for doing the work of whatever the problem solving, whatever problem solving is needed after this introduction of like, here are some challenges with Mercury co-present with Mars opposing Saturn, but then this longer period where some of that gets, um, some of that subsides, gives Mercury a little bit of space to figure some things out. Um, and then I was also just thinking about Valens writing about Mercury and Jupiter combination and using language like supervisory roles and managers and overseers of affairs and administrators. It just feels like together, Mercury and Jupiter have some capacity to like get a handle on things and um, yeah, just like, uh, manage what needs to be managed in terms of this, in terms of this transit. Yeah. It's a lot yeah. like the, it's a lot like the Venus cycle that we've been watching where the lead into it will, is a lot nastier than the outcome. Yeah. Um, which doesn't make the first several weeks of August any easier. No. Um, but it, you know, but it is good to know, like, this is the hard part, right? It's just a yeah. lot of pressure. Um, and, you know, we tend to, well, we don't think is, it's very easy to not think as clearly, not communicate as clearly um, under pressure. And, you know, with, uh, you know, with the malefics attending, we get worse consequences, we get graded more sharply, we get worse feedback. Um, so, you know, navigating this is important, but it's not like, you know, a lot of times there's a there's a tendency for people to view the retrograde. Oh, it's the actual retrograde where shit's really going to go down. Mm -hmm. um, but this is a little bit the opposite. It's actually the like the road, uh, the road to the retrograde is the hard part or the hardest part by far. Yeah, well, and there's um, both the Mercury retrogrades and the Venus retrograde. Those cycles are like finishing up weirdly about the same time mm -hmm. in the September time frame, which is kind of interesting because it probably means they're interlinked with Venus stationing direct in Leo in early September, but taking a while to gain steam again and move through the same degrees um, that she's already passed through a couple of times now. Then eventually Mercury stations direct in mid-September, but both of them then get back to their shadow degrees and finish things up in their respective signs of Virgo and Leo about the same time. 
and then depart from those signs finally in early October. Mm -hmm. um, so that gives you like a time frame, which is sometimes one of the things that astrology is the most useful for if you know if you're going through some issues or there's some some hassles or troubles or hard times that sometimes if it's tied in with those cycles, like knowing an end point roughly is, is sometimes useful, as well as in this instance, seeing that there's some positive resolutions to some of those tensions um, towards the end. Yeah. All right. So um, that brings us kind of to the um, middle of the month and to the next major well, before before we um that same day that mercury is making the trine with jupiter is also the second venus square to uranus which we've said some things about already um mm. but just to name that those things are happening on the same day um and yeah there's just there's i love the language you used earlier austin in terms of the garden and what um the garden of our desires and what is allowed to thrive um, like maybe you want a whole garden of sunflowers, but maybe you want some sunflowers and some other things. Like what are the what are the desires that get encouraged or cultivated or um, nourished or enriched? And I just feel like the um, I keep thinking when I'm looking at this aspect, this Venus Uranus aspect, I keep thinking about a phrase that Adrienne Marie Brown writes about in Pleasure Activism, um, where she says that pleasure is a measure of our freedom, that what we are capable of experiencing in terms of our pleasure is directly correlated with how free we are allowed to live. Um, and she's she's writing those ideas really in response or moving forward from an essay by Audre Lorde called Uses of the Erotic, the Erotic as Power. And at the beginning of that essay, Audre Lorde talks about the ways in which the erotic has been distorted and suppressed and vilified in our society, like our connection to our our what we were talking about earlier, our true, authentic, erotic desires. So many of us don't even have access to those things for so many reasons. Like, and the psychoanalysts gave us a lot of insight into why we might have might not have total access to our desires. Um, historians of sexuality, like Michel Foucault, has given us a lot of critical thinking about why might we not have total access to what we might think of as authentic desires. Feminists and feminist philosophers have been thinking about that for decades, but this square between Venus and Uranus feels like an opportunity to disrupt some of those things, to actually push toward exploring or experimenting with what it is we might want or the kinds of pleasure we might experience or daring to break away from some of those um, norms and expectations that have relegated us to one part of the garden and not other parts of the garden or just giving ourselves more freedom to embody more of what allows us to feel good. And I'm just thinking about like ways we might be with that transit. Again, this is the second one. There's already been one Venus Uranus square, which was back on July 2nd. Um, then the second one is August 9th. And then the third one is September 29th, just as Venus is coming to the end of its retrograde shadow. And some of the things that I was thinking about is like, this could be good times to like explore what else you might want or what else might make you feel good, whether that's like trying a new flavor of ice cream or trying out a new style or mode of presentation or exploring some new feminist pornography or experimenting with sex that you've maybe always kind of wanted but never had before. And those kinds of, of finding what's at the edges of what I've been allowed to desire or experience in terms of pleasure and or what's at the limits or the edges of what I have allowed myself to experience in terms of desire and pleasure. And 
having the coincidence of Venus square Uranus while in this retrograde period of review and reflection and reevaluation just feels like an opportune time to be asking a lot of those questions and then recognizing with that quote that I was framing with earlier that all of this is related to how free do you want to be? Do you actually want to be free? And if you do, if I think most of us aspire to freedom, we could have a longer conversation about that, but at least I, I think it's superficially, most of us think we want to be free. And if that's true, then why are, then in what ways have we not allowed ourselves that optimal range of freedom in terms of our desires and pleasures and our relationships and all the things that Venus might signify? Oh, I think that for sure. you know, it's not just the Venus retrograde. This is, or excuse me, the Venus squaring Uranus. The Venus squaring Uranus um, blends very, uh, as we say, uh, will blend into the Venus Kazemi, uh, which right. will then blend into the new moon on top of Venus just post Kazemi. And, you know, we have this sort of bottom of the underworld of desire, right? Like the deepest mm -hmm. point, right? Where the way we're moving forward begins to take you up back to the sunlit realm rather than further down. And the Venus Kazemi points are always one of deep, deep reflection, a uh, deep reflection about what do I, what do I want and what have I wanted? And when I, when I, um, you know, and <clears throat> what have I wanted? What did I not get that I wanted? And do I still want that? Right. Do I want to keep going? Or was that maybe, maybe is that not so important? Also, what did I want that I obtained or experienced that maybe I don't want again? Maybe I, I did want to get that or, you know, have that experience, but mm, I don't need it anymore. Or um, doubling down on like, yes, I got a taste and this is exactly what I want. But this relationship to what, you know, like on a very simple level, like, well, so what do you want? Right. Mm -hmm. um, certainly on an erotic level, but, you know, Venus also connects us to what do we want out of life? What are we, what do we feel pulled toward? What um, situations, um, appearances, uh, you know, experiences, et cetera, et cetera, are we like pulled towards, mm -hmm. right? Which is Venus that we're attracted to those situations. And this is sort of the, you know, that, that Kazemi point is really maximum, um, maximum, I think of it as like alchemical separation where mm -hmm. we're like boiling the, there's the, we, we, um, you know, our, our, our desires, our wants get stuck to an idea or an image, but then like, oh, why did I keep doing, I, I kept doing that because what I wanted was um, this kind of experience. But if what I really want is this kind of experience, maybe it has a different shape than I thought it did. Right. Mm -hmm. Or maybe et cetera, et cetera. But like this, 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 this feels very core Venus retrograde to me. Mm -hmm. um, and there's this point of like reconciling all of your like all of your pains and pleasures from the previous cycle and because that's what happened right mm -hmm. all the you know uh all the satisfactions and frustrations and suffering and all that like it all kind of comes back to a single point around that kazemi yeah all this is important this would make me think of and some of you're saying michael and also you austin trying to like formulate it but there's something the venus retrograde and the venus hard aspects with Uranus share in common. And it's something about that it's exciting. There's something exciting about stepping outside of the bounds of normal expectations of what is appropriate to desire. Yes. But then on but then on the other hand, 
Um, it's one thing to, to go to what you were saying. That's what Michael was saying. And then to go to what you were saying, Austin, it's one thing to idealize a desire of what it would be like to do something different, but then it's quite a different thing to actually do it and experience it and have it be different and then have to internalize that and reconcile and decide if that's really what you wanted. And if the desire once fulfilled is really worth it on some level, I think these mm -hmm. are all like major Venus retrograde themes tied in with that square with Uranus. Yeah, yeah. Because and the thing is, it, it's it's not that we discover that what we were wanting was wrong, and now we change, right? right? It, it's like I did that. Like I'm no longer attracted to doing that with my life. Like that's no longer exciting, right? Like mm -hmm. part of how you know that, um, you know, you're 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 in that sort of Venusian territory is it? You know, it, it's exciting. It gives it gives life, right? You're like, ooh, like achieving that would make me feel this way looking like this would make me feel this way being with this person would make me feel this way right and there's like a you know there there's a, a vitality that's always uh the, that always accompanies venus but one of the things i i guess i see on like um almost like a psychic economics level is that we can't prioritize every desire all the time right mm -hmm. like the like you have to uh you don't have to pick and choose um, but you tend to get much better and more satisfying results if you prioritize certain desires um, mm -hmm. for a given period of time. Totally. And what do I, I, what do I want most, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think um, to build on what you were saying, Austin, and also um, what you were pointing to, Chris, in terms of like, it's one thing to recognize the possibility of a desire. It's quite another thing to act on it and to experience it in some way. Again, it was reminding me of Audre Lorde. Um, and even, I guess I also wanted to clarify whenever I said the erotic, um, that I guess I'm using the word erotic in a more in a pretty expansive way, not only in terms of sex and sexuality, but um, Lorde writes about the erotic as the depth and fullness of feeling of which we are capable. And she gives examples of our capacity to experience that erotic fullness with things like, yes, sex, but also feeling your body moving to music or getting lost in conversation with someone or writing a poem, or even she gives the example of building a bookcase. It's like, can we feel more of what we're capable of feeling in whatever we're doing? And then to the point of, of what's the difference between the idea of it versus the actually doing it and experiencing it. Um, this is also from that same essay. I'm going to read this as an exact quote from Uses of the Erotic. She says, once we know the extent to which we are capable of feeling that sense of satisfaction and completion, we can then observe which of our various life endeavors bring us closest to that fullness. And she goes on to talk about that experience of once we know that life could feel this much or feel this good, why would we not hold ourselves and our lives to that standard? That's one of the ways in which the erotic is, you know, a threat to existing consolidations of power within social systems and institutions, because it's like, once people know like, oh, life doesn't have to feel this way. Life doesn't have to only feel oppressive or like suffering. Like we have a capacity for depth and fullness of feeling of pleasure and satisfaction, once we know we can feel that way, that motivates, that propels and energizes our capacity for creating social change, for pursuing our own liberation, for pursuing our freedom. So I guess that's just like another way of like connecting back to that dot between 
pleasure and freedom is like once we do give ourselves the opportunity to experience other desires. And I think I take your point seriously, Austin, we can't prioritize all of our desires all the time. Like there's certain things it's like when I really want to be writing and I really want to be writing, other things have to be put aside because I can't write and do those other things. So like, um, it's true. And in terms of our like, uh, aggregate lived experiences, what have we allowed or given ourselves the opportunity to experience once we have had those experiences that connect us to how much more we can feel. I think there's something about our expectations, our motivations, and our general standard of living that we're willing to accept that can be radically reoriented. And that radical reorientation feels like, yes, the reorientation of the retrograde, but also the radical destabilization and and propelling us into new directions of, of Uranus. What you're saying makes me think about Venus and the the, the concept of joy uh, mm. and Ven Venus having her joy in the fifth house, which is like traditionally called the place of like pleasures, which sounds very surface level, but there's actually something really important about that in that yeah. things that bring you joy sometimes make life worth living in a way and they can help you to motivate motivate you to do other things in your life that you might not otherwise do by having the the drive of experiencing joy in life. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd like to, as a Saturn ruled Venus, uh, I'd like to add that, you know, in addition, you know, it, it's important to expand that definition of pleasure and joy. So again, having the Saturn ruled Venus satisfaction is probably way, is way more important to me than, mm. uh, than joy in the moment uh, or pleasure in the moment. Um, and you know, like the, the satisfaction of a job well done is, is totally pleasurable. It's, it's, you know, its own irreplaceable, irreducible category of joy and of mm. pleasure. Um, but <clears throat> you know, uh, cause again, it, it can sound, if you just say pleasure without playing right. with the definition, then that does sound superficial. Like what you want, right? Like a back rub and, and I don't know. I do dessert, want a back rub. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, after uh, this, I could use one, but like, you know, like th this is part of this whole Venus retro, like heart of the retro thing is like, okay. Like, you know, when you desire, like I desire to be the person who got the book I wrote 10 years ago done so that I, I have a second edition. Like that's a pleasure that I desire. Right. Um, and it, in general, that's it's a good reminder for Venus stuff, but it's like a necessary um, reminder for this phase of Venus, where you're mm -hmm. where it's deeper than that. Where I'm willing to undergo this pain in order to have this pleasure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I was thinking about it in the sense I've been surprised over the past year to rediscover. We throw some like what seem like blow off significations in the fifth house, like games and and stuff like that, or fun and games. But sometimes things like that, having those things in a person's life, it can be this broader category of things that bring you joy, that make life worth living in mm -hmm. some sense, and that that's an okay oh, yeah. category that each of us has in some way. We all find simple pleasures in something that brings us joy, and that that's actually a core component in life that's important for everyone universally. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like I, I have a Mars-ruled fifth house, and part of the reason I got so into martial arts is I loved con I loved physical contest. Like mm -hmm. it was super fun for me, even, even if it, it involved pains, like it was just, it was joyful. Like I enjoyed like that kind of tussling, if you will. For sure. And that's, yeah. 
Yeah. So anyways, all of these are talking about this because these are all themes that people are going to continue coming up and, and reflecting on over the course of the Venus retrograde this summer, which speaking of, um, right after that square with Uranus on August 9th that we've just been talking about, Uranus or Venus conjoins the sun mm -hmm. and we get this the sun Venus Kazemi, which is the halfway point in the Venus retrograde cycle on the 12th and 13th, especially. So we reach the halfway point and the turning point where just like with um, Mercury retrogrades, where oftentimes there's like a problem or there's a thing that comes up at the beginning of the retrograde. And then by the time you get that to the halfway point, the Kazemi, you see a turn and you see a pivot point where some of the solutions to whatever came up earlier start to emerge um, in the middle phase of like the, the second act of the three act play, which is in this instance, the Venus retrograde over the course of this summer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so as I was saying earlier, this blends right into like the Uranus Venus blends right into this. And then this blends right into the new moon on top of Venus, which is just going to happen two days later. Mm -hmm. So really like that, like what well, you could say, August 10th through 15th, like a lot of that week is really all about this Venus stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, one simple way of putting it is like, this is the heart of the matter, right? Mm -hmm. Venus is in the heart of the sun. We're getting to the heart of the matter. And, you know, for these, for these um, like issues of what do I really want? Right. Um, you know, what do I want as I am here right now? Not, not what did I want when I was 20? Right. Mm -hmm. What do I want now? Um, and what do I really want? Not like, do I want a cheeseburger? Um, although I might also want a cheeseburger. Right. Um, yeah. the, and, like it's, and it's or, less, let, let me just finish this one point. I've got two sentences. The, um, the, this space is not necessarily where there's, there's a solution immediately to a complicated thing, but I would say it's the, it's, it is the space in, in, in which solutions can easily emerge. You're in the right place. You're in the place where the solves or the like, yes, that is it can easily happen. Mm -hmm. for sure so that brings us to our second oh can i say a couple month. of things about the kazemi yeah please yeah i was just thinking about to loop back to um your beautiful articulation austin of the getting to the heart of the matter and the ways in which that lines up mythically with the myth of inanna's descent into the into the underworld and getting to the heart of the matter at least in that myth requires the letting go of things the shedding of her talismans so that layer after layer until she's left in the underworld naked and bare and at the heart of like, this is all that's left. And so as we're approaching that Kazemi, which I totally agree, gets folded into the new moon in some way um, and, is, and is totally tied up in the square with Uranus, it's like, yes, what are the desires or the pleasures that we might explore at the edges of things, things we've been told we couldn't want or things we haven't allowed ourselves to experience, but also what do we have to let go of in order to get there where are there are there ideas about who we are or who we have to be that have to be abandoned um and that might not be easy because these planets are in fixed signs these it's like there's these are very um stable um consistent reliable even conditioned ways of knowing our experiences or knowing ourselves and yet what even in those most stable familiar consistent ways of viewing ourselves, is there more to let go of in order to get to this heart of what is it I really want? Yes, maybe I want a cheeseburger, especially with all that beef you have, but also what do I really want underneath that? 
And then just in terms of like some astronomy, or I guess like not really astronomy, but just like how does this Kazemi fit within a larger cycle? Um, because we've been talking about these the repetitions of the eight cycle, eight year cycles of these of this this particular retrograde cycle. Um, and one of the other layers that we can bring into that is like, where did the Kazemis happen? Um, because even though the, there's these periods where the retrograde is straddling um, uh, Virgo and Leo, and then eventually we'll straddle Leo and Cancer, um, where the Kazemi happens is one of the places we can mar mark the like, what's the heart of this retrograde? And the the Venus Kazemis, retrograde Kazemis in Leo started in 91, 1991, and will continue until 2095. Um, so it's like almost 100 years that the Kazemis of this particular um, retrograde cycle are occurring in Leo. And we're just like 30 years into that almost 30, almost 100 years. So we could, yeah, we could keep an eye on how are we part of, how is this particular retrograde, this particular Venus Kazemi part of a like almost 100 year story. And the fact that we're not even halfway through whatever that is, is yeah, just something that we can hold all of this within this longer framework too. That is yeah. interesting to think about. Um, I love that you mentioned the um, myth of Inanna um, and, you know, astrologers, like I was talking to Demetra about this this morning. She also saw the Barbie movie recently and thought it was really good. But we were talking about, there was an article written recently um, about that there's this weird parallel between the actual story in the Barbie movie and the myth of Inanna, which is like this, 2000 4000 year old myth about venus's descent into the underworld um, which is often linked with its conjunction with the sun where it goes invisible and, and sort of disappears um and i just wanted to read this really quickly because it's relevant to what we're talking about but the beginning of the article says once upon a time there was a beautiful goddess queen who became obsessed with thoughts of the underworld and decided she had to see it for herself to understand the inexorable mystery that draws all living things towards death. She succumbs to the same end as all living things, yet help reaches her and she escapes back um, to her own pleasant and lovely realms, unscathed but changed by her experience. Mm -hmm. um, upon her return, she discovers her lover has taken her throne, covered himself in her glory, and upended her kingdom. She must take it back from him and exchange him for her own presence in the underworld as no one is allowed to escape death. The goddess queen in question here is Inanna, ancient Sumerian fertility goddess and principal character in the first story written by an author who signed her name in human history. 2,000 years before the Common Era, a woman named Ahiduwana committed to clay tablets the story of traveling to the underworld. This story has many versions, many translations, and the original meanings are somewhat obscure to us across the gulf of time. The most recent version is the story of this story is Greta Gerwig's new film, Barbie. Hmm. So this is one of the actual discussions that's happening right now is this author goes on and points out these weird parallels, which I think are accidental, but probably an expression of the archetype coming through this, this movie of similar plot points between these different stories. And what's interesting about that is astrologers like Demetra have done lectures before showing how the myth of Inanna is actually tied with the Venus cycle, Venus's mm -hmm. retrograde, its conjunction with the sun representing the underworld, and then eventually it's Venus's emergence from the rays of the sun in direct motion as emerging from that and the end of the story. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Chris. It also made yeah. me think of Chani Nicholas wrote a piece um, 
called A Note from Chani on Venus Retrograde. If people Google it, they can find it. It was She was writing it during the Venus Retrograde or about the Venus Retrograde in Capricorn um, a couple of years ago. Um, but it's it, in that she also does a really lovely um, discussion of the relationship between the Venus Retrograde cycle and the myth of Inanna. Um, I'm not going to read any of it here, but just if people are interested, it's a really beautiful piece of writing. Yeah. yeah. Um, just one final thing about that. Um, the so what's interesting is that Kazemi or the you know the place of revelation, um, the the middle of the middle bottom of the underworld part of the story for Inanna is she's actually hung on a meat hook, mm-hmm. and that that is actually the place of revelation. And you know if we think she's hung naked, right? Like you have to get rid of all of your power in layer by layer to get to the heart of the matter, and then you know you have to be impaled on it. Right. Like if there's a problem, like it's not no longer ignoring the the pain or the problem, but placing yourself on it. And, you know, the story gives us that is like that is the place of revelation. Right. Which I think is very interesting. Yeah, for sure. So um, this brings us to our second lunation of the month, which is in the middle of the month, which is a new moon in the sign of Leo at 23 degrees. The new moon is squaring Uranus at 23 Taurus. So there's some unpredictability, some um, excitedness, uh, but also some instability to that conjunction. Uh, Venus has completed the conjunction with the sun and is now on the other side where eventually she's heading towards emerging from under the beams of the sun and sort of emerging from the underworld as we head into the second phase of this cycle around the time of the new moon. Um, Yeah, so this is our second lunation of the month. How do each of you feel about it? I feel like by experience, this is going to be inseparable from mm-hmm. all the stuff that we talked about that came just days before. Yeah, for sure. Okay, yeah, that's how I feel. Good, good. All right. So um, one thing I needed to mention really quickly then, since we're around this part of the month, um, is my our auspicious election for August, mm-hmm. which is set on August 7th, 2023, and it has... Uh, it's set for 6.12 a.m. just after sunrise, so the chart has Leo rising and the sun in a day chart just above the degree of the ascendant, Venus retrograde in Leo in the first house, Jupiter is up there in the 10th whole sign house in the sign of Taurus, and the moon is also in early Taurus in the sign of her exaltation. So this is a chart that's very much focused on the first house of self, appearance, body, but also the 10th house of career, social standing, reputation, and one's work or action or business. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a good um, career-focused chart. It's a little bit of a good chart aesthetically with Venus in the first house and the sun relatively strong in the first house and its domicile. Um, Yeah, and that's our auspicious electional chart for this month. Uh, Lisa Scheim and I found four or five other charts that we present on our Auspicious Elections podcast, which is available to Patreons, and people can check that out through our page on Patreon. It's right. a sturdy chart with the sun mm-hmm. and moon both being very strong and angular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those fixed signs are really nice around this time of the year to take advantage of just due to their, well, things can be very slow to get started under them. Um, if you are successful, they do tend to last for a very long time. So sturdiness is a good keyword. Thanks, Austin. Yeah. And yeah. And, you know, Dorotheus, um, uh, Dorotheus is very firm that um, all other things being equal, elections are better with a fixed sign rising. 
Hmm. Because if you're bothering to elect, elect it, you don't want it to change. You're like, no, I would like things to go this way. That's why I bother doing an election, right? Right. I also love in that chart that the moon is ruling the 12th house. And so there's something about um, the moon being exalted in the 10th house, really close to the midheaven, um, which has like a lot of opportunity for recognition and good favor and visibility. Um, but part of what the moon is responsible for in that chart is things that are maybe hidden or behind the scenes or things that are out of view and maybe bringing some of those things up into visibility into public space. So it's like if there's things you've been working on behind the scenes or in private, that this could be an opportunity, especially professionally, because the moon is in the 10th house to bring some of those projects or those things that you've been working on behind the scenes um, into the public space a little bit more. Right, for sure. That reminds me of like Galileo's chart that has strong connections between, I think, the 12th and the 10th. And mm -hmm did some of his most important works under house arrest, essentially mm. in prison. Um, okay, so as we get into the third week of the month, um, a few different things all start happening at once. Um, Mercury starts slowing down and eventually stations retrograde on the 23rd-ish and around that time frame. Right around the same time, we have Mars in Virgo opposing Neptune. So we have a Mars-Neptune opposition that's happening the same time that Mercury is stationing retrograde, mm -hmm. which is a little bit a little bit dicey. Um, and the Sun moves into Virgo uh, at zero degrees of Virgo on the 23rd, where it immediately starts applying to an opposition with Saturn. So um, Mercury retrograde in and of itself can sometimes be um, a period where communications are not going as well and having that happen at the same time when you have a Mars-Neptune opposition, which can sometimes lead to taking actions without having a clear idea of the outcome and sometimes making a mistake due to a misunderstanding or clouded judgment. Um, seems like it's a sort of constellation there at the same time that's indicating similar things. Yeah. Yeah, that Mars-Neptune opposition, I'm thinking about things like the frustration of disorientation or not being able to tell what's true or what's real or like mm, the ways we lash out at our own projections or the ways we act out violent fantasies or even like paranoia comes to mind the sense of like yeah. the agitating stories that we tell ourselves that may or may not be real um and i looked back to see like what does what was going on at the mars neptune conjunction because of course this opposition is part of that larger larger cycle between those two planets. Um, and that was back on May 18th, 2022. And one of the major headlines that week was the shootings in the predominantly black neighborhood in Buffalo, New York. And specifically on May 18th, the day of the conjunction, President Biden visited Buffalo and he described the mass shootings as an act of domestic terrorism and white supremacy. And specifically this quote, he said, white, white supremacy is a poison. It's a poison running through. It really is. And so seeing those events lining up with the Mars-Neptune conjunction back in May 2022, I'm considering or interested in how this opposition might involve some sort of, I mean, hopefully confrontation of the poison of white supremacy or and or other forms of hate and violence that are predicated on fantasies that are projected onto other people, especially fantasies of superiority and the subjugation of entire groups of people based on warped imaginations of who people are and their value and their worth. Um, 
that that would be my hope and, and i don't i wouldn't say that that's an, an inherent signification of mars opposing neptune um, but because of what was going on at the conjunction we can look for the ways in which the opposition is then some sort of development or culmination of that story and some of the events that were happening back then and and there are ways in which those events do play into some mars neptune themes in terms of the kinds of violence that get acted out on other people because of someone's warped imaginations or their fantasies or their projections onto other people that to be a certain color means you are inherently less valuable or that you are a threat that you have to be um uh dominated or that you have to be even killed like that those sorts of warped fantasies that were that we saw at the conjunction my hope is that the opposition leads to a confrontation of those sorts of things and not a perpetuation of them but i guess we'll have to wait and see yeah i i think of um with the mercury mars conjunction with mercury also opposite neptune like and it happening in virgo being critical and starting an argument with somebody um especially focusing on the details or focusing on smaller things but it ending up being that you made a mistake and you didn't have a clear understanding of the situation and I think in terms of like interpersonal dynamics, that would be a danger around that time of the Mercury retrograde station, mm -hmm. but it could be like a small infraction or exchange that because of the retrograde turns into a bigger one than you thought it might be at first. So just to try to exercise caution at that time of not making a mistake due to a lack of knowledge or, or unclear knowledge. Yeah, you know, looking at Mercury's time here in Virgo and just the situation, this is, uh, I get the impression of Mercury desperately seeking clarity, right? Because if we look at what's going on in Virgo, what's going on in Virgo is that it's being opposed by Saturn and Neptune and Pisces all the time now, mm -hmm. right? Like we have like very powerful, <laughs> um, should we say very, very powerful um, not very clear. What is what is the word? Anti-clarifying, muddling, confusing um, forces impacting the Virgo space, right? And I'm sure any uh, anybody who has planets in early Virgo has noticed, uh, or or late Virgo has noticed the opposition from Saturn and Neptune and Pisces. And so we have the you know the ruler of Virgo like sweeping back and forth and trying to undo projections, undo mm. fantasies. Like no no what are what are the what are the, what's actually going on here right you know we talked about that with the era of saturn and pisces and like what's happening exactly like which which story is this uh, mm -hmm. or which braid of stories is this and mercury you know mercury's uh nature is very frustrated by that right so trying to like trying to clean that up um i think of uh it's if we're cleaning it's probably like wine spilled all over the carpet uh, or, you know, it's a liquid, it's a liquid mess, which is much harder than I dropped a glass. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Mercury in Virgo and also Mars in Virgo is very good at like editing, because with editing, you have to cut something out, you have to remove something, and you need to focus on the details. But it's like, what happens if you're trying to edit something, but you're, you lose your glasses and your vision is blurred or something like that, but you still have to like take a knife to something in order to remove something you might re remove something valuable or make a mistake in the process mm -hmm. so unfortunately all of this is kind of like the end of the month and a lot of these problems are happening at the end of the month with the mercury retrograde and while venus is heading towards the resolution of the 
um, retrograde and stationing direct. It doesn't do that until the early part of September. So all of this stuff happening, this sort of tension towards the end of August is somehow the setup for the eventual resolution of some of these themes in September, but we don't quite get there this month. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that you know Venus is not done with the retrograde cycle, but Venus is starting to feel pretty good, right? Mm -hmm. Venus, uh, Venus is uh, already made uh, an exact square to Jupiter, and it's just hanging out um, in aspect to Jupiter, and has become visible again. Will escape the beams shortly. Like the Venus stuff is still there, but it's getting into a pretty good place. Um, whereas Mercury, <laughs> Mercury is in a very complicated place. Um, an increasingly complicated, it has been in a complicated place and now has to turn around. Right. But you know, that, that Venus is like through the, 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 like the jarring Uranus square is through the like unpleasant, but potentially revelatory Kazemi, like, you know, just hanging out in aspect with Venus ruled Jupiter for quite some time from, uh, the, <clears throat> from the end of August onward. Yeah, that's a good point. Not resolved, but feeling pretty okay about where things are mm -hmm. going. Yeah. I didn't notice until you just mentioned that, that Venus is getting to that 15 degree point from the sun right at the same time. So Venus is actually emerging from the underworld and from the beams yeah. of the sun right around this time. Yeah. All right. Um, nice. So that brings us to the final week and final days of the month where... Mars eventually departs from Virgo and moves into the sign of Libra by the 27th and 28th. So mm -hmm. th that's a major shift since we've been, you know, having this transit of Mars through Virgo over the course of the past past month or so now, um, which is the final end point to the Mars Saturn opposition as well, and some of the tension that culminated at the exact opposition later in July, but now that opposition fully ends at this point, which shifts us somewhat dramatically or starts shifting us dramatically into a new phase. It does, but it's, and it's also a major change in dignity for Mars to go into the sign of its um, detriment or exile to be far away from its home sign of Aries. Um, and and that tends to be a more frustrating place for Mars, it tends to be more agitating in terms of what Mars is going to um, act out on or the kinds of the kinds of acting out that Mars is going likely to describe while it is moving through Libra. And I guess the ways that I tend to think about that is, you know, lately, the last couple of years, because of some writing I've been doing, actually, I just put a talk about this up on my website, um, thinking about Mars in the context of feminism and feminist astrology, just been thinking about the ways in which we so often describe Mars in terms of things like severing and separating, which are absolutely part of Mars's function and how Mars um, behaves symbolically and astrologically. And what does it mean to hold those significations of severing and separating and the kind of independent drive and pursuit to go your own way and cut your own path? How do we hold that within a larger view that we're never actually separate from one another, that we're never actually separate from the world around us, whether we're talking about that in terms of an ecological perspective that like literally your body only exists because of its implication and entanglement with the landscape around you, or a social perspective, the ways in which we um, irrevocably depend on one another for our lives and livability, what then does it mean for Mars to sever and separate if we understand that fundamentally we are inseparably relational with one another. Um, and so then Mars moving into Libra 
Um, I think Mars is often descriptive of the ways in which we struggle with that inherent mm, interdependence, that inherent relationship or interconnectedness with one another. Mars, there can be some frustration with that because of course it's not always easy to be with other people or to depend on other people or to feel the vulnerability of interdependence. And Libra is a place where there's a lot of capacity in general for things like cooperation or collaboration or consensus or bringing together lots of different perspectives and finding how do we hold all of these different experiences and needs together in terms of our solidarity with one another or to build coalitions with one another. And Mars is moving into Libra. So it's like those things that collaboration, cooperation, solidarity, coalition, those are not easy things. It's actually hard work to struggle together to find how do we be together. Yes, we are um, undeniably dependent on one another, interdependent with one another, interconnected. And what's frustrating about that? What's difficult about that? What's agitating or disruptive about that? And so I imagine as Mars is moving through Libra, those are going to be some of the kinds of stories, depending on where Libra is in people's individual charts or personal charts, um, that we might see more of that kind of struggle to accept the ways that we depend and are depended upon by others, the ways in which we are already connected to one another, the ways in which we can never fully sever or separate our connections to one another, and the ways that we struggle to be well with one another. I guess what I'm pointing to is like the difficulties of coexistence and Mars moving through Libras likely to bring up some of those stories for us. Yeah, and it's amazing that that's starting right when Venus, right before Venus stations direct. Right. Um, and the problem with the issue that Mars often runs into in Libra when it's in its own sign, like Aries uh, or or Scorpio, you know, Mars is given a knife to accomplish its sort of like severing and separating directive or function. But then you put it in Libra, and how do you how do you accomplish that function with like? Uh, a handful of flowers or a bouquet of flowers. Um, and sometimes how Mars acts in that position is like, I think of that phrase, um, kill them with kindness mm. and what that looks like in a, in a context of Mars going into that environment while Venus is stationing direct in Leo uh, square Jupiter. Yeah. Kill them with kindness or a, a charm offensive. Mm. That's good. Yeah. I, you know, I find with, um, with Mars in Libra, um, like, like you were saying, Michael, the, the, especially for Mars, like the, the difficulty of navigating the social, co the Libra where Libra is, Libra is a place that prioritizes social cohesion and when in, <clears throat> and social cohesion often requires forms of etiquette or, you know, codified ways of relating and Mars is terrible at that. Um, and then simultaneously doesn't want to be there, wants to be doing something else. And so, like you were saying, I see like Mars irritability because with Mars, when Mars is not given a job to do, and this has to, this, this is true in the world, but also um, within everyone, when, uh, when your Mars doesn't have problems to solve, something to struggle with, something to wrestle with, something to like uh, achieve or, you know, da, 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 like that energy, like I, I would add to cutting, Mars loves burning, right? Mm. Um, and like, you know, if you think of 
um, I should say like your heart rate goes up, like you start burning more fuel inside your body. Like the martial state is a fiery excitatory one. Um, and when that, when that fire doesn't have anything good to it, you know, when there's nothing to accomplish with the fire, where there's nothing, there's no reason, uh, there's no, uh, task to get the, uh, you know, to get the, to stoke the fire, you get like this sort of like these sort of, I don't know, like resentful moody frustrated embers of fire rather than like fire that's um both accomplishing and then fed by that accomplishment um so you get that and then i i also uh, i also uh, see in a lot of especially more sort of traditionally mars and scorpio mars in the first house type people that the the level of motivation just kind of drops off um, there can be struggling with laziness because part of his Mars is in Venus's domain and Venus is like, well, you know, um, you know, Mars says, you know, what, what is there to do here? Right. And it's like, well, um, we're going to, you know, we're going to do watercolors, uh, during the afternoon. Um, there's this great, uh, there's this great, um, you know, there's this great charity event we're going to go to in the evening. Um, and so Mars, Mars can just be like, there's frustration, but also lapsing into like, uh, I don't know. I don't really want to do any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Really good point. Um, so all this has become super relevant when we get weirdly our third lunation of the month, which doesn't usually happen, but it happens right on the last days of the month um, on August 30th. We get a full moon in Pisces at seven degrees of Pisces uh, conjunct Saturn, or at least it's separating from the conjunction with Saturn at that point. And at the same time, Uranus has just stationed retrograde at 23 degrees of Taurus. So this lunation is partially charged by an intensification of that Uranus transit, which has now gotten as far into the third decan of Taurus as I think it's ever gotten mm -hmm. uh, at this point, up to this point. So that's a little somber of a full moon in Pisces conjunct Saturn. And it's our first, I guess it's our first full moon in Pisces conjunct Saturn since Saturn ingressed into Pisces way back in March. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I appreciate that the moon is separating from Saturn, like yet yeah, still within four degrees, but it's moving away at that yeah. point. It has reception from Jupiter, which is nice. I mean, sign-based reception, not degree-based, but there's some support there. And I like that it's off-axis from Mars because Mars has moved into Libra at that point. Um, the only thing that like really jumped out at me whenever I was looking at this lunation is that the moon will be pretty closely conjunct a fixed star um, in the constellation of Cygnus, the, um, uh, the fixed star Denebadige, um, which is the tail of the swan in the constellation of Cygnus. Um, which is a lot of associations with artistic practices, artistic talents, both because of the ways that swans are associated with Apollo mythologically, um, but also because of the way that swans sing the swan song, especially when they're approaching death. So there's like this long association between swans and artistic creativity and things like that, but also some spiritual associations that um, Manilius wrote that the swan conceals a god and a god's voice within itself, which most likely is a reference to Zeus transforming himself into a swan in order to impregnate Leda. But this idea of the swan concealing or holding a god or divinity or the voice of God within itself. So I was just thinking about this full moon as maybe like a good time to engage in artistic practices, artistic pursuits, maybe with some discipline to it because of the Saturnian influence there, um, but also with practices that 
give us a sense of the ways that we we ourselves embody the divine or whatever it is that we hold sacred, that this could be a full moon for honoring or practicing along those lines or in those directions. Yeah, that early Pisces area is uh, is quite, how should I say, it's quite artistic. I, I think even more it's fuel for what can become art if craft is applied. There's like a, there's a huge imaginative um, heaviness and depth there with Saturn and the moon in the first decade of Pisces, right? Like there, there's a, there's a, you know, a strange undersea world, right? Under, I don't know, however many atmospheres, like weird and pressurized and inspiring. It's Saturn's there. So also frightening. Um, you know, it's a, you know, one of the things I got immediately from, uh, from the Saturn's ingress into Pisces was like the, oh, the heavy, the emotional heaviness mm -hmm. of these huge things, right? Like, you know, a, a fitting, uh, fitting metaphor, which came up is like, oh, the wreck of the high Titanic, right? Mm -hmm. Like this whole complex inside of which all these stories happened and, and intersected. Um, and, you know, like that, that's sort of like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know that, that, yeah, that emotional Leviathan, um, mm -hmm. that's somewhere down there, um, feels like what the moon is shining on here. Uh, if strangely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that. And then also to your point, Michael, that it's like, we have that in that as the backdrop as we're heading towards the end of the summer and we're coming out of the heaviness of the Venus retrograde and the Mercury retrograde starting, but then and the heaviness of Saturn and dwelling with that, but then the moon is applying to that sextile with Jupiter next mm -hmm. with reception and that there's like a hope or a sense of some sort of positive light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. Or with Jupiter and, and Taurus, right. I, I, you know, it's not the most amazing place for Jupiter, but I, I feel like with Jupiter and Taurus, it's like, but how can we, how can I live with this? Right. It doesn't solve mm -hmm. all of the problems, but like, okay, so that's, you know, so this is true. There are emotional leviathans, you know, buried beneath the sea and, you know, there's all this stuff, but like, okay, so how, how can I live with this? That like the Venus ruled fixed sign of Jupiter, it's like, okay, so what's, how do I carry this or what is the way forward? And Jupiter in Taurus, I think is really useful for making things workable or livable. Mm -hmm. Well, and I like the language you used Austin in terms of um, what becomes possible through the application of craft. And that that feels like a nice echo of like the sun is actually in Virgo in this in this full moon, in this opposition. And so Jupiter in terms of what can we, how can I live with this? And maybe one of the strategies that this full moon offers in addition to the things like creative or artistic practices or some sort of um, spiritual practice in terms of recognizing and honoring the divine or the sacred within yourself is like, what's the craft of this? What are the actual material practices, Virgo? What are the things that I'm doing in order to make this something that I can live with? Mm -hmm. Love that. And what, what wisdom do I, do I, excuse me, what mm -hmm. wisdom do I obtain by bearing witness? Yeah. Beautiful. Brilliant. Um, all right. Well, that just looking at the chart is like kind of one of the notes that we end on. Um, there isn't full resolution here, but there will be um, before too long in September. But 
um, it seems like we're getting, especially the second act of the Venus retrograde play this month, and that's part of our main focus in addition to the Mercury retrograde and everything else that we've talked about. Um, but I think that kind of brings us full circle in a sense. And while we're leaving it on a bit of a cliffhanger in terms of our like series of monthlies this month, that is the nature of, of astrology and of our monthly forecast episodes where we sort of check in periodically, sometimes right in the middle of things or right uh, taking a slice out of you know this period of time. And then we'll return again next month to see how it, how it concludes. Yeah, stay tuned for Mercury and Venus's direct stations. Yeah, part three. All right. Um, thank you. This is amazing. Thank you both. Um, thanks, Michael, for joining us today. Um, what do you have coming up in the future or what? Uh, where can people find out more information about you? Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me back. It was just a delight to be in conversation with you both. Um, people can find out more about me or, or connect with me through my website, which is michaeljmorris.co. Um, at the time that we're recording this, I'm fully booked for consults through the end of August, and I have one consult remaining in September. Um, so either if people want to work with me, they can visit the bookings page on my website or get on the mailing list to find out when I am starting to book again for later in the year or just upcoming offerings, things like that, then my mailing list is the best place to get that information. Um, in the meantime, I have recordings of past presentations and workshops that I've given that are all on my website. I just updated a few more um, just this week um, that I gave in within the last year, including the talk that I um, mentioned earlier about that I gave in June about astrology and kinship. Um, and then for people who are in the Ohio area, um, I am premiering a new performance or a new dance work, an oracular performance dance work, um, August 10th, 11th, and 12th called Bibliomancy, an oracular performance, um, which is an interactive divinatory dance performance that I'm doing in just like two weeks from the time we're recording this. So if people are in the area, it's free, it's open to the public and all the information about the performances on my website. Awesome. That sounds great. I'll put a link also in the description to your website below this episode on YouTube or on the podcast website. Um, Austin, what do you got going on? Oh, this and that. Um, I'm going to put up some of the presentations and workshops that I've given over the last year or two uh, onto the website uh, for sale in August. I haven't decided when. And then there's nothing new coming out from Sphere and Sundry this month. The uh, Thema Mundi pre-order is still open for like, I think, another week. It's not, it's about to close, but there should be some August where it's available. Um and uh, yeah, I'm mostly going to be locked into a box with a window that only peacocks can see into and just grinding on um, the faces uh, 2.0. That sounds right. like a, what's the myth of like, of like Prometheus who's like chained to and like a bird comes and eats his um, like oh. liver each day. There's like a weird version of that going on here. I was thinking about the myth of Argus and the peacock and Hera um, tossing all of the eyes of Argus onto the peacock. And I hope, I hope your peacock's name is Argus, but it doesn't have to be. It's good. That's funny. I, I actually, we'll talk about it after record. I, I went yeah. deep on Argus and peacocks recently. Amazing. Nice. Um, all right. As for myself, like I said, Nick Dick and Best and I are going to record a casual astrology podcast, uh, nerding out over the astrology of Oppenheimer and Barbie and even more obnoxious depths, depth than I went into in this episode. So if you'd like to sign up for that or check it out, you can find us on Patreon 
www.thebigfatlyfunny.com. Otherwise, I'm going to keep working on the website or the podcast and have a big episode coming out next month on the difference between the sun, moon, and rising sign. So I'll, re- I'll release that for... Uh, I'm doing that actually with Chani Nicholas, which I'm pretty excited about and should be an amazing episode. And um, yeah, so if people want early access to that, you can also find that on Patreon. In addition, if you would like to support the work I'm doing here on the podcast. So I think that's it for this episode. Thank you both again for joining me. Thanks to our live audience who was here commenting and talking with us. It was sometimes giving great feedback and different notes that helped guide the discussion. So thanks for joining us and supporting the podcast. Uh, And that's it for this episode. So thanks everyone for watching. Good luck next month and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Mimi Stargazer, and Jean-Marie Kaplan. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through our page on patreon.com. In exchange, you can get access to bonus content that's only available to patrons of the podcast, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the monthly forecast episodes, our monthly Auspicious Elections podcast, or another exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast, or you can even get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, visit patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. If you're looking to get an astrological consultation, we have a list of recommended astrologers at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. The astrologers on the list are friends of the podcast that have been featured in different episodes over the years, and they have different specialties such as natal astrology, electional astrology, synastry, rectification, or horary astrology. You can get a 10% discount when you book a consultation with one of the astrologers on our list by using the promo code ASTROLOGYPODCAST. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of SolarFire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. You can get a print copy of the book through Amazon or other online retailers, or there's an ebook version available through Google Books. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course, you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com.